given you historical context behind the page and behind the scenes and in the world for this 2008 movie this is our remastered look at iron man in the beginning of the mcu putting right what once went wrong going back three years to our first episode quantum leaping it um and uh, and really correcting uh, what we what we put down a lot, a lot of fun with that first episode but we're really doing this movie and the beginning of the mcu real justice don't you think will absolute justice i mean well i've trawled through Abs- so much so much stuff online about this film looked into the information decided what was actually pertinent to the cause rob and absolute justice sounds like a great like name of a video game or a movie <laughs> absolute justice um and we're it's not it, it, you know we, we we heard from the people that matter most we paid some bills and things um but it's uh it's almost time for the patented deep dive the mvm deep dive into this movie where me and will can pull it apart for what happens on the screen for what happens off the screen and to dig into the history and trivia of these characters and events um let's do a big shout out though to the the subscribers and the community that make this possible the big heavy hit of the world-class wrecking crew over on mm. patreon i'm talking peter j mikey w brandon schmigielski randall schmidt george bing oh yeah yeah george bing we love george we love zach him. thomas bastard beer sam bindi and soupy that's an old list that needs to be updated i'm gonna have words later on after the show ends with the person that keeps adding the old list <laughs> oh, love, i'm so sorry but we love everyone that has supported us and everyone that still supports us we love you all um and you guys make it all possible because uh, those top tiers carry a lot of the weight. Um, Will, you get the reins for the show. I get the reins, which can only mean one thing, Rob. It can only mean one thing. It's, it's, it's Blu-ray time. It's Blu-ray time! We're putting the disc in. We're sitting down with the remote. Let's press play. In the Kunar province, Afghanistan, Stark industry CEO and billionaire playboy... Tony Stark is driven by a military convoy building rapport with the awestruck troops. So awestruck troops. While taking a selfie with one of them, the convoy is hit by an ambush, killing all of the soldiers except Stark. Running out of the jeep to cover and trying to contact for help, Stark is knocked out by an explosion caused by one of his own company's missiles. When he wakes up, he is held hostage by an Afghan terrorist cell. First of all, uh, seeing the Paramount logo at the start mm. really surprised me. For complete, as you know, yeah. we covered it before before in this episode. Completely forgot though when I was watching this, the distribute they were distributors obviously before Disney took over, uh, except for the Hulk movie, yeah. Hulk, Hulk as well. Yeah, but we'll we'll get that. We'll go, we'll, I'll, I'll say the exact same thing. When we cover the Hulk, oh, I was surprised to see the Paramount logo at the. No, 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 because it's oh. not Paramount for Hulk. Oh, sorry, it's Universal. It's sorry. Universal because of their weird claws. We talk about those bad deals that Marvel made. Yep, yep, yep. Don't worry, I'll say the exact same thing, but with Universal instead. Exact same yeah. tone. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, it, it is interesting. They've got a part. You got a part. The partner with the big boys to get it to the big cinemas. You do. You do. Um, and then, of course, Disney came along not long after this, but. Um, 
all of Marvel Entertainment and said, we have our own distributors. They're yeah. called Disney. <laughs> <laughs> it's very satisfying that. It's all in-house. We got it, baby. Also, Rob, as everyone said, Robert Downey Jr., he just, for me, he just owns the role in the first minute of screen time. I was laughing and I stopped the film just to see how much, this feels like fast, five minutes have passed, just one minute's passed and he's already delivering some great quips in the he's car. Just, he's just so relaxed and loose oh, in his performance. So good. It's, I mean, this is, uh, there was a whole thing where he got his career back on track, you know, it was this comeback. Do you think this was the movie that did it for him? Yeah, absolutely, without a doubt. Like before, like the last thing I remember him doing before this was like guest spots on Ali McBeal. <laughs> I think he had a guest spot on Family Guy as well. And he did, um, he did. Yeah, but that I mean, every, that's not a mark of someone being back, is it? Mm. Everyone does that. Uh, he he did a music. He I think he got day release from a from being in rehab to film the music video for an Elton John song. I remember that. Oh, wow. But that came after Ali McBeal, and then it was kind of like nothing, and then it was this. I think Gothica was another film he was in just before this. But if we don't remember it yeah. properly, then it was not him back, was exactly. it? Exactly. That was his, that was him starting to come back, but this was the definitive point moment. Also, speaking of things that come back, Tony mentions MySpace. <laughs> Wow. Just a reminder of how long ago this film was made. I remember having MySpace. I didn't join Facebook until 2007. And it used to be the be- better than MySpace because it wasn't full of absolute rubbish that MySpace would have, like weird HTML stuff and effects you'd put on your page and music blaring at you. I miss that. I miss it. Bit of, bit of, <laughs> bit of uniqueness. Um, ah. I, didn't, I didn't join until 2009. Oh, I really fair. held off on Facebook for some reason. I don't know. I, 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 someone, someone told me about. I remember being in someone's back garden in Gosport on a sunny day, and they went, "Oh, you should join Facebook. It's better than MySpace." And they went, "Really?" I went, "Yeah." And then I joined it. Um, MySpace was useful for booking comedy comedians and comedy gigs mm. and stuff because Facebook didn't have groups yet. Ah, uh, and there was right, just a, right. every, every, and not everyone was on it. Whereas everyone was on MySpace, and there was this this way of being able to find local. I can't quite remember how it was done, but message boards and MySpaces was the thing. Amazing. So, getting getting back to the film, uh, does this happen to Tony Stark in the comic books? Is he kidnapped by an Afghan terrorist cell? Uh, well, no, it's 1963 when yeah. Iron Man is created, so it's the Vietnam War. Exactly. Um, we see the Tony Stark uh, is uh, in in situ in the American kind of uh, side of of the of the war in Vietnam, and he's invented a very strong magnet. Will. <laughs> <laughs> that's his that's his big weapon it's his big thing um he shows it off to the u.s army he's very proud of it do you know do you know why it's so good why he's got a transistor oh and that transistor and every time you hear the word transistor people just think of the word switch or button yeah <laughs> but he's got a transistor that he puts on the magnet and it makes it super powerful <laughs> by pressing this switch. Stanley does not know jot one about science, um, but he's he remembers magnets from when he was at school and he's heard or read in the paper of the word transistor, quite a new word, yeah. perhaps in the lexicon of 1960s. And he loves these words without knowing what they are, and so he just puts them into every single issue of Iron Man. Um, 
Uh, or maybe it's Larry Lieber, because Larry Lieber wrote the script. Maybe it's a Larry Lieber thing. It's not. It's a Stanley thing. Um, so Tony uses a super magnet to rip apart a massive metal door, and he says that his transistors can increase the force of any device. Oh, Again, God. transistor is a fancy word for switch, that for is... button. <laughs> This car isn't going fast enough. Have you tried pressing the button harder? Pressing the, tran- the, the transistor. Try uh, turning the ignition harder. He's basically saying to the general, he's invented a magic switch that can make the guns more gunny. <laughs> <laughs> he can make the, uh, you, these guns could be more, more, more gun, better, more powerful guns that reminds by using... Me- Transistors. That reminds me in video games, in bad video games, or one that ha- they're not totally realistic. It's like you can upgrade your gun, and it's like you can make the a, the barrel a bit longer, which increases damage. And I'm there going, that's not how that works. <laughs> so uh, Tony goes out into the war zone to see his new super powered guns murdering people up close and personal. Hooray. He's jolly pleased with his handiwork. Hooray. Uh, then he steps on a land, or he steps on a on a thin. It's a landmine, but it's a very thin tripwire landmine. Mm. Blows himself up, uh, and when he that's when he gets kidnapped by the Red Gorilla forces. Um, now this was the sixties, um, and that means that this no longer holds up as Iron Man's origin story. If you're reading it today. Mm. Because if you pick up an Iron Man comic book in the here and now, you're reading about a guy in his mm, late 30s, early 40s. Yeah. So he couldn't have been a young man in the Vietnam War of the 60s. It just wouldn't track. Marvel explains this with something we've talked about before called the sliding time scale or the sliding timeline. Basically, it means there's no exact year when Tony Stark became Iron Man. Whenever you're reading a Marvel comic, Tony Stark has been Iron Man for about 10 to 13 years. Yeah. That point of time keeps sliding up to keep track with today's date. Um, So if you were reading an Iron Man comic in the 90s, he'd been Iron Man for about 13 years. If you're reading it now in 2023, he's been Iron Man for about 13 years. So it keeps sliding. Um, So over the years, Marvel have had to update the war that Tony Stark was a part of to make it fit in with the modern era. And it's not just him. This applies to Reed Richards uh, and Ben Grimm, who first met um, in the... uh, not first met, but they they worked they worked for the military in the Vietnam War, and of course, the Punisher is connected to the Vietnam War. Um, so over the years, this kind of war has been updated by Marvel to be the Gulf War of the early nineties, and then later the war in Afghanistan in the early two thousands. That's where I think the MCU takes this this from. And then in two thousand and nineteen, two Marvel brilliant Marvel writers, Kurt Busiek and Mark Wade, wonderful writers, had a brilliant idea. They've had it for a while, actually, but they instigated it and put it into place in, in 2019. Instead of tying Iron Man to an actual historical war, mm. which will always need updating, absolutely, they changed his history and created an historical event in the Marvel Universe, a fictional event in the Marvel Universe, called the Sion Kong War, based in a fictional Southeast Asian region called Sion Kong, which essentially serves as a stand-in for the Vietnam War and the Korea War. I like that for several reasons. One, you don't demonise a specific nation, Mm. you know, because it could look bad years on. And also, if there were, like, decades and decades of unexpected peace, 
for whatever reason, when the America doesn't get involved, it would be like, oh, he, Tony Stark was involved in this war. It's like, but there are, there are no wars to reference to because of this long time yeah, peace. Yeah. So it's, it's a very, very clever thing to do. They unveiled it in the 2019 History of the Marvel Universe, which I really recommend. It's a great read. It's um, it's not. It's, it's a little bit of story in it. It's basically Reed Richards' son Franklin at the end of time with Galactus recounting the history of the Marvel Universe, Incredible. and it's the most modern form of the Marvel Universe. It's really good fun. Um, so in that in that it's revealed that Tony Stark. Reed Richards and even the Punisher's origins were now tied to this fictional historical um, conflict and not a real war. So it's a floating war for a floating timescale. Floating war sounds like a great concept for a film. <laughs> it's just it's a pirate movie, I guess. It's a pirate movie with Zeppelins. Anyway, <clears throat> 36 hours earlier... Tony Stark is due to receive the Apogee Award at a conference in Las Vegas for his personal achievements and the success of his company, presented by his longtime friend, United States Air Force pilot James Rhodey Rhodes. However, Stark's second in command and friend of his late father, Obadiah Stane, informs the audience that Mr. Stark is elsewhere and accepts the award for him, while Tony is elsewhere gambling and living life to the full. On his way out of the casino, Tony is interrupted for an interview by Vanity Fair reporter Christine Everhart, who refers to him as the Merchant of Death due to Stark Industries' contribution to global arms. After charming the reporter back to his home, Christine wakes up in Tony's high-tech cliffside Malibu mansion before being shown out by Stark's personal assistant, Pepper Potts. Can we just talk about the line that is used in this? Which line? Go on. Where Christine Everhart is trying to like lord it over Pepper Potts because she slept with Tony, yeah. and she's kind of like, "Oh, so you're? I've heard about you. You're Pepper Potts. You're the assistant. I hear you. Um, you like you get his coffee and um, pick up his laundry. And Pepper Potts says, "I also take out the trash. Yes, and shows her out of the house. Oh, oh what a line! That is a good line. Work. Love it. Beautiful line. Uh, for a few things here, Obadiah Stain, uh, I'm convinced that's what I will look like in 20 years' time. <laughs> you hope you do. I was about to actually change that to I hope I do. Uh, you mean he's he's got a shaved head and a beard? Is that what you mean? Yeah, he, well, the beard, <laughs> yeah. you know, he's, he's, got, he's got a silverness as beard. But he's, yeah, you're right, he's quite... <laughs> he, well, I am... You've got to bulk them shoulders and everything. I, I am. I am. Ever since I quit comedy, I've been on an exercise regime where I run three times a week, I swim once a week, do weights and kettlebells three times a week. I can't wait to hear more about this. We're going to start selling supplements on this this podcast. That's (laughs) a hell. (laughs) Hey, you like Huel. We we can sell our own brand of Huel. Someone said, Huel is just slim fast for lads. Slim fast for lads! (laughs) Well, I, I always thought it was just like, oh, wow, they've managed to rebrand gruel. Great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Basic sustenance oh, porridge. Also, back to the back to this. Uh, John Favreau, speaking, speaking of the opposite of bulking up, John Favreau looks very thin here. Because, of course, seeing him in later films, he's, he's you know, he's times past. He's, he's a bit bulkier. And here he's really thin. <laughs> I, just, I guess. So. I don't, I'm, I, there's, no, is there, is, there's no point. It's just... It's just a passage of time. It's it's on hindsight. Looking back at this young, first you could film. say young. You could say John Favreau looks really young here. Ah, yeah, he looks young, but he's. No, that's he's, not he, what you wanted to say, is it? No, you wanted to. I be... want to fat shame John Favreau. Yeah, that's what it feels like. Yeah, <laughs> just a horrible. Shout out to all the kids listening. <laughs> 
remember, don't, yeah, <laughs> small best to send out to the world. Yeah, as we said before, uh, Richard, the chemistry between Robert Downey Jr. and Gwyneth Paltrow is just great from the word yeah. go. It's incredible, so good. incredible, incredible. I, like, as much as she's got this weird company that I don't understand, and I'm a bit put off by like nepotism and money and stuff that's around yeah. her. I love her in so many roles, and um, I like it whenever I see her on, like, uh, you know, the Graham Norton show or a chat show or something. She's, I, I really like, I'm kind of drawn to her. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, I, 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 I think this and the Royal Tenenbaums means she'll always kind of occupy quite a special place in my favourite movies. Um, oh, and yeah. she's just fab in this. I know, I can't fault her despite, you know, her, her weird company, etc. I, I, I think, yeah, she's... As, as an actor, she's just great. Yeah. But uh, in the original stories, Rob, is this what Tony's life is like before coming Iron Man? Is he a bit of a playboy? Is he a mad drinking guy? Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, Excellent. Excellent. This is how he's introduced yeah. in the uh, 1963. Anthony Stark, rich, handsome, known as a glamorous playboy, constantly in the company of beautiful, adoring women. And then one of the uh, bikini-clad women who see him at the, at the the hotel says, he's the dreamiest thing this side of Rock Hudson. <laughs> <laughs> Anthony Stark is both a sophisticated and a scientist, a millionaire bachelor, as much at home in a laboratory as in high society. Um, yeah, it's it's a very 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 brief in the in the first Iron Man story two panel little summation. Um, it's kind of similar to what you get here. He just sums him all up. Um, later stories kind of fleshed out this period of his life a little bit more. Yeah, um, and there was this thing that he's so, he was so intelligent that he was struggled to stick to any one challenge or thing. In his twenties, he was just like. A he was a drift. He was a shiftless thrill seeker, mm. um, and uh, he's just constantly trying to fight against the mundane that he felt swilling up in his life. Um, so it's like skiing, uh, parachuting, like but like down alpine, down a mountain oh, skiing, yeah, pr- not, parachuting, not, hang gliding. Um, not the indoor skiing like us plebs do when we no, save up enough money. And and and. and and the stuff like like so but not any one of them becoming that's my passion now mm. he'd do it he'd master it and then he'd be like bored of this what's the next thing um and it seemed so it was an awful lot of 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 partying and drinking and reckless behavior and then when he's in his early early 20s both his parents die and he inherits the um, Stark Industries the business mm. um and has to become the CEO and that occupies him that's, and he um... trans Oh, sorry, I was about to say, that's that's where the uh, Batman comparison sometimes comes in. Because of the whole being a CEO, parents died, etc. Okay. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I don't know. What, what, do you want, what do you want me to do? Yeah. What, do you want, what do you want from me, Will? <laughs> one guy, one guy can have dead parents, nobody else. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> go and tell Robin Hood. Oi, Robin Hood, you ripped off Batman somehow through time travel. Um <laughs> The, he he transforms the he kind of transforms the company and takes it away from just munitions. Mm. This is a modern retelling. Yeah. In modern retellings of this of the history, um, he transforms the company so it's not just all in munitions and it's a mm. lot more scientific, contemporary science stuff. Not true when in 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 the sixties when he's first created in the sixties. It's just weapons of death. Um, 
it said that he also he so Tony's Tony's parents die in a car crash. One of the first things that he does is he buys the the company that the the car company mm. the made the car that they died in, and he redesigns the brake system that led to their deaths. Um, yeah, so um, but once he kind of mastered that that CEO thing. Mm. He's got no more challenges, and he starts to become reckless and self-indulgent again. What's that phrase? Uh, Alexander wept for there are no longer any worlds left to conquer. Yeah, roughly that. Roughly that. I I always get the famous quotes wrong. I'm very bad at it. So, later that morning, Tony Stark races to the Stark Industries airship to take off to Afghanistan on his private jet with Rhodey who is initially rather miffed at Stark's lackadaisical attitude to drinking on the job, but eventually joins him for a few champagnes before landing at Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan. I've got to say, that's the coolest airplane yeah. ever. Look, the stripper pole comes up, and I know that I, I, it's, it's obviously very sexist and misogynistic, but it, to be on a plane with your best mate drinking champagne, and all of a sudden a stripper pole just emerges from the, <laughs> from the from the from the from the floor, and the air hostesses start taking their clothes. I mean, it's just this is this is how you want to portray Tony Stark. Do, so cool. Do you know all I could think of was Austin Powers because he had his own jumbo yeah, jet with a love. It love did. Bed. It, it's a very over the top kind of campy thing, isn't it? It, it? I think it works in kind of we're still in the the, the sort of pr- uh, prologue mode of this is Tony. Stark, this he's an over the top billionaire. He's going to have all this stuff. It, it just hits it, yeah. hitting it home as much as possible while being yeah. entertaining in a very silly way. It works. Anyway. And sexism is wrong, guys. It's wrong. Yep, they should be on the stripper poles. Definitely then. Absolutely. Absolutely. Actually, to be fair, they should take it in turns. They're in fairly good shape. I reckon they could do it. Um, yeah. Meeting with the US and Afghan generals, he doesn't waste time presenting to the troops the new Stark Industries missile system. The Jericho. After the presentation, Tony and James leave in separate Humvees, leading to Tony getting caught in the deadly ambush. Tony Stark's flagrant jingoism when talking about weapon systems is done in a way that's entertaining without beginning to be too uncomfortable. It's it, it straddles that line where he's just saying, like, we, we, we gotta we got to take. We got to bolster America, being the best in the world. And they're going, okay, 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 with all this death machines and whatnot. But he does it in a way that's you still well, watch it's, it. It's it's the it's the famous um, uh, is it is it Teddy quote or is it? It's one of the Roosevelts. Um, and I get, uh, but it's the thing of um, you know, welcome everyone in, but carry a very big stick. That's that's the one. Carry. And he's like, this is the stick. He literally talks about the big stick, doesn't he? Yeah, that's, they, what, they, it's, they, that's what it's. I forget the quote exactly, but it's yeah. Also, that shot of the explosion happening behind while his arms are out. Incredible. It's it's. I <laughs> just a quick tangent. <clears throat> uh, I probably didn't mention it on a Rob versus Well episode. Uh, I had to leave a job once. Uh, a few years ago because they're pretty much being made redundant but it was kind of done in a weird way where it wasn't entirely comfortable but i managed to find a new job during the not the checking out you know during the 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 the, the period at the end of it i managed to right. find a new job within a couple of weeks and my post on linkedin and everything was just that gif like found a new job landed <laughs> i'm fine boom <laughs> i love doing it i love posting that when celebrating something anyway 
Waking up in a makeshift infirmary in the terrorist cave system, Tony is shocked to discover that while a lot of the shrapnel was removed from his chest, the medic, Yinsen, had no choice but to install an electromagnetic uh, electromagnet hooked up to a car battery to stop the remaining shrapnel reaching his heart. Their conversation is cut short when a group of armed terrorists called the Ten Rings enter the room. Now, we've talked about the Ten Rings uh, before, but obviously we're going to need to talk about this. But just one thing before we do. I'm noticing things that I should have noticed before when watching this film, but only picked up on this time. I did not know the Ten Rings were in this. And I feel really stupid for missing that out. Really? Yeah. And I was like, going, the Ten Rings? What? And, and then, of course, now we have the hindsight of everything that's happened, like with the Mandarin and Shang-Chi mm. and everything. And it's like, oh, this has lot, got a lot of good world building. So, Rob, the Ten Rings, what can you tell us? They are definitely a group from the Marvel comics, aren't they? No. No, no, no. Oh, they're not? Nope. Nope. nope We've covered nope. this before. This is how bad um, my memory is at uh, times. I don't know if we have actually. Originally, no, they are. They have. They are. They don't exist. This is just a little Easter egg reference um, to Iron Man's greatest enemy, the Mandarin. Mm. The Mandarin possesses ten rings of vast alien power. Mm. He wears a ring on each finger, and each ring has a different power, making him insanely powerful. Like one of them can Mister Freeze freeze you. Oh. One can hypnotize people one can shoot you with lightning one can shoot you with fire one can teleport him one can disintegrate anything one can rearrange matter he can turn one substance into another substance <laughs> one of them can even apply for amazon next day delivery without subscribing to prime <laughs> it's insane it's it's crazy so i remember seeing this in the cinema and getting very excited I from that imagine. little reference um just thinking that it, to me, it immediately said that in the future, we're going to get a future movie. Because I already knew that, that, that Stain, Ironmonger, was a bad guy. Mm. I just thought in the future, in the next movie, we're going to get to meet the man behind the Ten Rings, and it'll be the Mandarin. That'll be cool. Um, and that sort of sort of happened. Um, and it wasn't that cool. Um, but following their appearance here in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the Ten Rings organization was eventually incorporated into... The Marvel comics, they folded them in. Um, but, you know, uh, yeah, so it didn't happen until 10 years later in 2018 in the Riri Williams Ironheart comic. Um, we meet the Ten Rings for the first time, um, completely unrelated to the Mandarin in the comics. Mm. No, I'm not sure why they're called the Ten Rings then. Um, <laughs> and they're just kind of like, they're, they, they're a terrorist group, but there also might be a mythic cabal. Uh, yeah, and Riri Williams fights them and you kind of like work out that they're all the mythic stuff about them is just been clever propaganda. Mm. They're just a group of terrorists, yeah. I like so that. yeah, it's a, it's a it's an odd it's an odd sort of but not really but it's another it's like the reference at the very end it's like the um, you know Nick Fury putting the Avengers together it's it's an Easter egg reference that was there for long term fans to enjoy without necessarily but it's a, it's a it's leaving a thread that they might do something with but they don't have to it's just a. Uh, it's not mass. I don't think it's like we came to this movie with loads of plans for the Mandarin and the Avengers. And yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah. It's just it's just all little threads. World building, like you said, world building. World building. That's the one. That's the phrase everyone uses that I forget to use. <clears throat> Raza, the terrorist leader, calls Tony Stark 
the most famous mass murder murderer in the history of America, with Yinsen translating, and says that if Tony Stark can build a working Jericho missile for the group, then he can walk free. After refusing the task, Tony is tortured and led outside the cave system where Raza shows Stark the rest of the camp, with piles upon piles of Stark Industries weapons lying around. Sorry. According to Raza, Tony has everything he needs to build the Jericho missile and needs to work immediately. But he and Yinsen know that Raza will not keep his word. I really like that they're hammering home the irony of Tony Stark seeing how his weapons affect people. They're yeah. really hammering... It's like how it falls into the hands of terrorists, etc. It's really... They're you, really you going for it. You, you don't get that in the original stories, but you do later on in the updated retellings of it. Not surprised, not surprised. Because uh, it's, it's pro-war, the first stories are like... Oh, no, no. America's at war is brilliant. Killing oh, yeah, people is cool. Mainly because Stan Lee set himself a writing challenge and wanted that's, to That's see. exactly what happened, yeah. That's exactly how it happened, and dogs yeah. and cats are best friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, going to his injury, though, uh, I take it he gets the same kind of injury in the original comics. Is that where the electromagnet he invented comes in handy? Sorry, the transistor he invented comes in handy. Yes, it's the same. It's the same injury. He wakes up yep. in captivity um, and is told that there is shrapnel from the landmine stuck in his chest, Oof. moving closer and closer to his heart with every heartbeat, and he'll be dead within a week. Um, and uh, the the terrorists, well, the Red Gorilla Army, as they were at the time, whoever whoever it might be in the sliding timescale, says if you build weapons for us, then we'll bring in a surgeon to operate and remove the shrapnel. The bad men, don't call them. Just say the bad men, right? Yeah, the bad um, men. And the shrapnel is so close to his heart, death being so close at all times. That's that's like really key to to the Iron Man story. Because that heart injury continues and lasts. Um, Iron Man essentially being trapped. So he has to wear the Iron Man suit all the time. Ooh. He doesn't, there's no arc reactor. So that's it. it. He's inside the, he can't be a billionaire playboy. He has to wear the chest plate underneath his shirt all the time. Oh, the chest. I thought you meant he was constantly in the big clunky suit. I believe, as it is first intended, mm. that was meant to be the story going forward. Yeah, uh, I believe it's meant to be like the Iron, the Man in the Iron Mask. Yes, I think that's why he's called Iron Man. I think it's about to. I think it's meant to be. He is trapped in this monstrous form forever. Mm. We'll talk about that later on. Um, but it's like he's in an iron lung. Ah, uh, um, yes. We. So we should try to understand that when Iron Man was first created, heart transplants don't exist. It had never been done. So there's no fix for it. There's no, you know... Uh, 1967 is the, is, the, is the date of the world's first heart transplant. Mm. And it's successful for 18 days. And then, unfortunately, the patient dies of complications 18 days later. Well, they, they, they say it's infection pneumonia. You go, well, that's a complication of surgery. Um and it was until 1969 that his heart actually gets sorted out. A story called What Price Life? Um, Tony <laughs> receives what a, a, what a heart name. transplant. Mm. Um, and from that point on, it's now like, oh, can my new heart take 
the strains and rigours of being Iron Man. I do like that. It's very convenient from a narrative perspective as well, as it's very, it is, will be very, uh, not only will Tony Stark be trapped in the Iron Man suit, but the story will be trapped in a corner if it continues like that without him becoming free. Yeah, yeah, I think that's yeah. probably what happens, yeah, within, yeah. within uh, four or five years. Absolutely. Back to the film. At the cave workshop, Yinsen convinces Tony to take on the task, even if he might be dead within a week from his injuries. With help from Yinsen and some of the terrorists, Stark starts working intensely. However, instead of a Jericho missile, Tony has actually built a miniature arc reactor, which he intends to power the electromagnet in his chest, boosting his lifetime from a week back to average lifespan, as well as powering something else he's been working on. Doesn't he invent a new element to do this? Was it? Oh, or is that a future? Is that that's the second one? I think it's the second one yeah, because yeah, it, yeah. they need the elements to uh, sort out the poisoning that's happening, isn't it? That's right, the extremist well, stuff. No, we, I believe we'll one. get onto the second one in remastered, won't we? In, in due course, phase one. It's part of phase one. Yeah, part of phase one. It will be remastered. We'll get onto it then. Anyway. So it's uh, going to power something that else he's been working on. A prototype suit of powered armour. The two start to build this ambitious project, but it isn't long before the terrorists notice that they are definitely not building a Jericho missile. Barging into the workshop, the terrorists threaten the two before moving to torture Yinsen. Tony, while at gunpoint, tells the terrorist leader that he can't build the Jericho missile without his assistant. Angrily, the leader tells Stark that he has until tomorrow to build the missile. I like that we see a few of these scenes uh, happening from the view of the CCTV in the guards' room, but it, they have no clue what's, what they're doing until it's incredibly obvious. Yeah. It's just like, like, what are they doing? Is that, is, that, is that a Jericho missile? Oh, I don't know. Just let them continue. It's like, it's great. <laughs> they're great banging no- metal. Yeah. Such a nice little touch. Great touch there. So, Yinsen, is he a character from the comic books or was he invented for the movie? No, yes, he, he appears in uh, a few pages of the of that first story, the story that introduces Iron Man. And he's much the same. He's a, he's a, a captive scientist, genius, being forced to build weapons, um, and a good man who, who um, saves Tony's life and... Um, and yeah, years later, the story reveals how Yinsen came to be captured by these communist guerrillas. Mm. Um, he was kidnapped from his home by Russia's top operative, the Black Widow. Um, so that's part of uh, Yinsen's kind of wider lore. Years later, Iron Man discovers a group of people in uh, whatever region this is meant to be um, wearing old like prototypes of the Iron Man armor cutting around Southeast Asia. And they call themselves the Sons of Yinsen. Oh, okay. Um, there it is. So it, it kind of says, this story says, he didn't quite die when he was shot to death in uh, the, the first Iron Man story. He was alive long enough to pass on some of his notes and teachings to uh, another young lad at the at the camp. Um, who uh, who carried on his legacy and um, carried on the uh, built a community based on the teachings of Yinsen and used his notes mm. to build prototype Iron Man uh, suits. 
And then there's a weird thing where Tony Stark goes out there and finds that they've managed to they save his brain in a jar and keep it alive, but it can't talk or do anything. <laughs> it's so it's a weird it's a weird '90s story. You'd yeah. think it would go somewhere and lead somewhere and lead to him coming back or becoming a robot or AI or a computer or something, but no. Everyone agrees that this was a stupid idea from the year 2000, and they never mention it ever again. Is there a narrative term for something that gets brought in that thinks it's going to leave somewhere but actually doesn't? I don't think so, no. No, no. no, no. We need that, I think. Yeah. So, working hard through the night, Stark and Yinsen make the finishing touches to the power armour. But before Yinsen can make the last few connections to the suit's wiring, terrorists try to barge into the workshop but are blasted away by one of the suit's weapons. Under Tony's instructions, Yinsen almost completes the machine, but needs more time before the software updates. With no choice, Yinsen runs out of the workshop brandishing an assault rifle to buy Stark more time, but ends up face-to-face at gunpoint. As the terrorists enter the workshop, the powered suit comes to life, punching one of the terrorists across the room before lumbering after the others, taking them out with pneumatic punches. As Stark manoeuvres through the suit through the cave system, the soldier's gunfire against the bulletproof armour is useless. Finding a mortally wounded Yinsen, Raza fires a grenade at Stark, but this misses, allowing Tony to light up a missile at Raza, causing some of the cave to collapse on the terrorist leader. Trying to get Yinsen out of the cave so the fellow captive can see his family again, Yinsen reveals to Stark that his family is already dead, and in death, he will be reunited with them. Whew. So, uh, the death scene, that was great. Nice bittersweet moment before Tony unleashes Havoc. Mm, it's not yeah. even the end of a film. This feels like a proper story arc happening. Yeah. This could be, this first bit could be a film within itself if, it's, if it wasn't a superhero film. If it was yeah, like it's exciting, yeah. The true story of someone being captured by terrorists and forced to work for them before escaping, this would be the whole film. <laughs> Also, yeah, when he when he when he kind of ends up landing in the desert and stuff, you kind of do feel like you've been through something and come out the other side of something. Yes. You go, ah, oh, great. <coughs> and you get the relief of being back in like familiar Western world having a cheeseburger. Yeah, yeah, that 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 feels like the end of that story arc. Also, Yinsen running after the terrorists, wildly firing a G thirty six rifle, was quite funny. Uh, Stark goes through the cave system, smashing an iron open door and getting his uh, arm caught in a rock before the terrorists shoot Tony in the head, only for the bullet to ricochet, ricochet back in his face. I thought that Yinsen could have at least, you know, instead of firing blindly in the air as he's running, he could have shot at them a bit. I, it became, it was, uh, for me, it felt, it felt quite apparent he's a pacifist. Yes, okay, yeah, yeah, that would actually but that, make I, sense. I, it, just, yeah. it, just, it just felt like that to me, because he, yeah. he very much could have shot them, yeah, but he, he chose not to. It's, it's, it's me in my head playing my games going, no, no, yeah, no. Yeah, you, you see your life like a video game. <laughs> if, if you shoot them, there are less of them to shoot back at yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. So, it, 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 through conversation, through world building, if you will, the terrorists aren't actually all Afghan, but they seem to actually come from different places. Uh, Yinsen mm. mentions that as well as Arabic, Urdu, and Pashto, which is, of course, the language main, the main language used in Afghanistan, if I remember right, the terrorists also speak Russian and Hungarian. This would mean the Ten Rings are an international terrorist organization, not just one based in Afghanistan. There we go. Yeah, I, I thought that was a nice little touch. Also, this is our very first look at the Iron Man armor in the film, and it's very different to the iconic armour that we've come to recognise in later years. Rob, 
You're the man to tell us. What can you tell us about the early Iron Man armor? Um, it's this. It's the same kind of. It's very bulky and it's grey. Mm. It's got a little skirt. And there's no skirt in this. Is there? <laughs> it's, it's, I just remember. It's skirt. got a little skirt. Yeah. It's got a little bit. <laughs> just to impress those damn liberals. It's got a little kilt. I don't know why. It just has. It's got a little kilt. Well, you've got to have. Um, uh, you've got to have something to protect the nether regions. <clears throat> yeah, true. I mean, it's, there's no arc reactor in the comic books. It doesn't exist. So Stark and Yinsen build a chest plate. For Tony to wear that has a powerful magnet built into the chest plates, and the magnet keeps the shrapnel from moving, so he can't take that chest plate off ever. Um, Stanley loves making his lead character a tragic romantic figure as much as possible, <laughs> and he likes to do that through some sort of real or high concept disability. Mm. So Daredevil is is blind. Thor's human um, alter ego. Has and I think it's a, it's never said what it is. He has to walk using a cane, so he's some problem with his legs or his back, his spine, and he's referred to all throughout as being lame and being a cripple. Um, horrible sixties language. Uh, Cyclops and the X Men. He can't control his his deadly eye beams to such an extent that it is portrayed as a disability. Mm. Um, Stanley is an experienced writer of love stories and romance comics, soap uh-huh. opera, yes. and he knows that the sweet spot is in the longing that cannot be consummated. So he puts two characters together that are desperately want to be with each other, and then he uses something like this to keep them apart. And it is always, in, 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 these, mo- in these stories, this sort of old idea of like male chivalry and honor right Mm. so it's the character has something that they see as being wrong with them that makes them a poor choice for the woman they love so they refuse to tell her that they love her and refuse to actually be in a relationship with her so that she can have a better life Mm. daredevil with karen page thor with um Jane Foster, Cyclops with Jean Grey, Iron Man with Pepper Potts. It's all, they have this story, they love the woman near them, but they can never admit it because they, they believe they, she deserves someone uh, better and not injured or disabled or whatever. Um, and uh, that goes on and on. I was watching Downton Abbey recently, mm. and they did exactly the same thing with one of the, sort of the, 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 the lead character gets injured in the First World War. And he then pushes his fiance away to spare her being stuck with him, who now cannot walk. Classic kind of romance, tro- romantic trope. Yeah. Um, and this is the constant weight around Tony Stark's neck. He must always, always. He's always moments from death, and he has to always wear the chest plate under his under his shirt. Now it's not as big as when he initially built it. He manages to make a smaller version of it, but essentially he's always putting like a shirt over the chest plate mm. um the the suit itself enhances the user's strength um they can uh we we see in the comic he can pick a man up and spin him around so he can smash through metal doors and destroy <laughs> brick walls and crushes a cannonball with his with his with his hands Oof. um all sorts of stuff like that um and he has a bunch of miscellaneous kind of equipment built in that we, that we see over the, the first few kind of... Uh, here's a buzzsaw and a drill. Um, I think he may have a public address system. <laughs> it, it, but maybe he adds that later, I'm not sure. Yeah. He definitely has like a miniature flamethrower in the hand, which mm. he uses uh, on... And he can... Um, and magnets. Magnets are a really big deal. 
Yeah, Stan loves his magnets as well as his transistors, which, as we all know, makes everything more powerful. More powerful. More powerful. Just imagine if you put two transistors in a magnet. Whoa. No, they oh. counteract each other. Oh. They counteract each other. Oh, and Stan knows that, of course. They create anti-power. <laughs> Did Stan Lee say that? <laughs> no, I'm just. I'm, I guarantee you, if he was alive, it's exactly what he'd say. <laughs> that would be true. Anyway. Outside the caves, terrorists open fire at the suit with absolutely no effect. Tony takes his turn, unleashing a flamethrower on the group. Stomping through the camp, terrorists continue to fire at him as uh, continue to fire him as fire reaches the ammo cache, causing the camp to explode. At the last minute, Stark activates the suit's jetpack, launching to safety before cutting out and sending the billionaire hurtling into the desert sand a kilometre away, completely destroying the suit. Wandering the dunes, a bedraggled Tony Stark is eventually rescued <laughs> by a US Black Hawk you, helicopter sorry. with Rhodey running out to meet him. You look what? a bit rough. What have you been up to? Oh, just wandering the dunes. Nothing, <laughs> <laughs> just, just hanging around. That's, that's, oh, you, that, look like, you look. Yeah, well, sorry. What you look saying? like you've been wandering the dunes. I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> not, slept, not slept very well. I, uh, I have to say, like, jetpack, flamethrower, everything, like, all done without having a test run through. Had to all do it on the first go. That's I love that. Absolutely. I love this whole scene. It's a great. It's scene. so good. It's so back to basics. Um, it's can just, you can you tell this movie doesn't have a big budget? I can't. No, it does seem like a big budget movie. Yeah. That's the weird part. I think. I think because the the, the finale isn't as like earth shatteringly explosive yeah. as the MC movies get along, That's it is just two true. power high powered robots fighting each other. But it works. The third act does work. But yeah, it's just oh, it's just you have these dramatic bits, this feeling of yes, cheering him on because he's uh, forgive me for saying this overpowered compared to them because completely protected, and you have the little funny bits more where powerful. one of them fires he is a more pist- powerful than them. He's more powerful. There we go. And he, you have the fun, a funny bit where a guy shoots a pistol at the head, and it just, <laughs> bing, yeah. and shoots him back in the head. I just think that's just a, for a bit of violence, that's genuinely funny. This is the <laughs> bit I, I think I think I enjoyed the start of the movie when I first watched it, but this is the bit that made me go, "Oh wow, they're yeah. doing Iron Man. They're properly doing it." <laughs> also, the jetpack giving up shortly after his dramatic escape is a great punchline to the entire thing. <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> really think, is. Yeah. He's launching off, and oh no, 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 bye. <laughs> also, Terence Howard as Rhodey. Do you, do you think he would have continued being a good Rhodey if he didn't get booted? No, I don't. I can't. I'm, I'm just, now you're asking me. I'm not sure if there's some sort of um, odd history with him recently. I can't remember. I don't know. I apologise if, if I'm praising um, someone who's problematic. Um, I, I I like Terence Howard. I thought he was good. I thought he was really good. Yeah. I think I preferred him to Don Cheadle. I don't yeah. really get Don Cheadle in the role. Um, he's fine. He's perfectly fine. I think Terence Howard was a much better fit. So Don Don Cheadle, he's a good actor, but I think he's there's something a bit more soft and kind-hearted compared to. Terence Howard, yeah. who seems a bit, there's something there's a tougher yeah, edge like to Yeah, seems the action hero. He, yeah, he suits that kind of role. And he's younger as well, which I think is 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 good. Yeah, yeah, that works. Don Cheadle, I mean, he's like a hundred. How old is John John Cheadle? He's really old. I'm going to quickly look up how old is Don Cheadle. He is <laughs> 58. Oh, so he wasn't that. Uh, Let's say, have a look at Terence Howard. Terence Howard is 53. But you he know, still looks he just, quite he just young. Looks younger. He just he looks, looks young. He looks more like a contemporary of Robert Downey Jr. Whereas uh, Don Cheadle does not. Yeah, I get that. I get that. 
So, a great escape scene all round. Is this how Tony escapes from his captors in the original Iron Man story? Noah used suction cups to stick to the ceiling. Yes! <laughs> As one of the big gadgets they add into the suit. Suction cups on the hands. And he jumps up and sticks to the ceiling. That's so when the, guards, when the guards come in to check on him, he's not there. They can't see him. Where did he go? Um, and then, for virtually no reason, Iron Man puts on, over his armour, a hat and coat... And see the disguise <laughs> and starts lumbering around the prison camp. You might think he's trying to disguise himself, but no, because it looks so obvious. And as soon as the guards see him, he says, Let me just remove my clothes and goes, Yeah, I'm a big iron man. Um, it was entirely done so he could take the clothes off and go, Dramatic revealed. Um, he re- they shoot at him, he repels the bullets by using what will. Uh, magnets. Yeah, magnets. A transistor-powered <laughs> magnet, because transistors make things better, kids. <laughs> he is nearly defeated when one of the bad guys pushes a filing cabinet down a flight of stairs. Home <laughs> <and it laughs> alone style. And it lands on him, and it knocks him on his back like a turtle, and he can't get up. That, I think um, I, my screen is covered in spit now. And he's, he, he's very heavy, and Iron Man is stuck underneath it, and he realises, <laughs> oh no, they filled all the drawers with rocks <laughs> <laughs> to make it heavier. <laughs> I'm not making this up. Quickly, take out those documents and put these stones in the filing cabinet. I have an idea. Be- before the robot man kills us. God, uh, that's brilliant. And then he gets up and he just uses a flamethrower that he's built into his hand to burn the camp to the ground. Ooh. And then, as it's burning, he puts back on his hat and coat and walks off into the jungle. And the story kind of ends with this idea. To my mind, this this idea is present, I believe, that he can't take the suit of armour off. There's nothing that says he's going to live a normal life. It says it says in the text, he cannot take off the chest plate. Mm. Um, and I think it looks it looks to me a bit like Stanley wanted to make him a sort of a tragic monster figure. Yeah. Like a, like a Hulk figure, basically. A bit like the Hulk. Um, trapped inside this monstrous, grey, horrible, medieval-looking armour. Um, like, he used to be a gorgeous, pretty boy. Now he's... I think it's a Man in the Iron Mask kind of deal. No, um, definitely. And the character even says, I'm not Tony Stark anymore. I'm a monstrous Iron Man, as he walks off into the jungle. That would um, be a typical, like, Stan Lee name. You have the incredible, the uncanny X-Men, the uh, amazing Spider-Man. Well, and what did you describe Iron Man as just now? The in- well, just now, the yeah. monstrous. The monstrous Iron Man. Yeah, maybe. And it, it, the story even refers to him as being hulking several times. So, mm. yeah, the idea of doing superheroes wasn't fully formed at Marvel yet because superheroes oh. weren't popular. Um, and so this is, I think this is more is presented as like a twisted tale of science fiction gone awry, a cautionary monstrous tale. Be- behold the, the, the dashing, beautiful uh, uh, Tony Stark inventor who now must live trapped inside his own creation. I think that was the idea. Not a- for him to be superhero, going to go yeah. punch bad guys. A twisted tale of science gone awry, by a man who doesn't understand, doesn't understand science. science. <laughs> the twisted tale of magnets gone awry. Or transistors <laughs> gone awry. Oh, we boy, shouldn't this... refer to it as science fiction. It should be simply called magnet fiction. Magnet. 
<laughs> it's going to be the next big thing. You think the Twilight Zone's good? We're going to do even better than that. Just Magnetic magnets. fiction. Just, just <laughs> magnets. Stories about magnets. Later on, he he, he, he he defeats a flying saucer by throwing magnets at it. He goes, <laughs> oh, no, it's it's made the GPS on the flying saucer go mad. Oh, no. They run, they just, they run away from it. They run away from the magnets that he's throwing at them. <laughs> he's, just, he's just there and it's just... T-shirt and jeans with a big bag just going, just chucking I I, I don't even think he needs the suit of armour at this point. He could just throw magnets at people from a bag. Oh, God. Oh, God. If if, if only that were actual film, I would love that even more. (laughs) This is why, guys, like, like, characters are not all about their origin. They, mm. As we've said several times, they crystallise over a series of years. Mm. Daredevil really comes into his own as a, as a being this combination of, like, his origins, but then the 80s where he gets grim and gritty, and then like later on the the, the 2000s where that comes back. That's the crystallization of the Daredevil character. We've- um and you know, if you went by strictly just the first gleamings of these characters, mm. you'd have very weird stories and very weird movies. I would say when it comes to stuff like 80s Daredevil being grim and gritty, I think the term should be millified. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. Frank Miller. Anyway, enough banter and fun times. Get back to the movie. Landing back in America, three months after he was captured, Tony is greeted by Pepper Potts, Happy Hogan and Obadiah Stane before giving a press conference at Stark Industries. At the conference, Pepper Potts is approached by Agent Phil Coulson of S.H.I.E.L.D., who is interested in working with Tony Stark. At the conference, a woozy and wounded Tony Stark, looking back on his horrific ordeal, Stark announces that his company will cease manufacturing weapons. Much to the surprise and confusion of everyone, including Obadiah. Talking with Tony, Obadiah reminds the CEO that Stark Industries is a weapons manufacturer and the Arc Reactor is their last scientific breakthrough. Even then, it's a publicity tool, a vanity project. However, Tony opens his shirt to reveal the fully functioning miniature Arc Reactor he built in a cave impressing Obadiah, but his older partner is concerned that Tony's actions at the press conference may ruin Stark Industries and his father's legacy. Now, I am powered by ignorance. I have an arc reactor in my chest. Sorry, in my brain that powers my ignorance, if you will. It keeps, it keeps it... the shrapnel moving around so he doesn't know things. <laughs> yeah, it keeps it swirling around. I, I, the, you're going to be impressed with the power of ignorance here, but I completely forgot Agent Coulson was in this film. Really? <laughs> completely think, forgot. When... And I went, oh my God, it's Agent Coulson. What's he doing here? I thought well, he popped he was up in just... Iron Man Two. Uh, I thought his first appearance was in Iron Man Two. They ramp I'm... it up in Iron Man Two, don't they? Yeah, because this is him making the first tentative steps towards. Do you want to? And he's in. He's parlay. in Incredible Hulk as well. Oh uh, yeah. Well, I've only seen that once, and you know he's the thread that connects the movies. You see, I love it. I mean, I, I guess I guess Nick Fury. No, because Nick Fury's not in the um, Incredible Hulk, is he? Uh, no, he isn't. Tony Stark has that yeah. that role. Is yeah, I remember now. But we'll get onto that when we remaster the Incredible Hulk. Uh, the only other thing, on another note, uh, there's a scene where uh, <laughs> Pepper Potts is watching Mad Money, the stocks, the, the, the entertaining stocks show. Yeah, yeah. And it's the, the only other thing I've seen Mad Money on is Arrested Development. And I had no idea Mad Money was an actual show. I just thought it was the kind of thing that only exists within a TV show acting as exposition. Like they've invented this TV show to explain the plot. 
I the first time I saw Arrested Development, I thought the same as well because yeah. it's so over the top. We don't have anything like that in this country. Um, but then I've seen it show up on lots of different things, so I, I guess it. I guess it is. And it's an actual show, and you're there going, "Wow, okay." I There's mean, always but- money uh, in the banana stand, so <laughs> the big yellow joint, the big <laughs> yellow joint. Anyway, Obadiah Stain, the man who I hopefully will be become to look like, uh, is he a character from the comics? Oh yeah, he's yeah. like the most. He, he's he's maybe the most. I don't know what to call it. Calculating or devious, or he's one of the worst Iron Man villains introduced in the early eighties as a a business rival of of Tony Stark's. Um, he's the head of a massive company, weapons manufacturer, and wants all of Tony's contracts. And it's also said that he had a uh, a long term partnership with Tony's father. Mm. Um, now. Obadiah Stain is obsessed with chess. Ooh. It was the only way his abusive father ever engaged and connected with him. And he was forced to kind of like train and play it and everything like that. Um, we also learned that Stain's father um, took his own life oh. uh, by playing a game of Russian roulette. Yikes. Um, and that's kind of... Yeah, haunted uh, Stain's life. So Stain sets about trying to take Tony Stark apart with calculating like the idea is he's this grandmaster chess player mm. and he's going to move all these different pieces onto the board and attack Tony Stark in different <laughs> from different directions in different ways with these calculated moves um now he doesn't know Tony Stark and Iron Man are the same person because that's not a thing that anybody knows um so he manipulates a large series of events in Tony Stark's life to completely destabilize him. Um, there are lots of different kind of attacks on um, people that work for Stark Industries. Um, he sets up a woman called Indris Indris Moomji um, to be Tony Stark's new girlfriend and lover, mm. um, but she's actually a spy, an agent working for Obadiah Stane and doing whatever he tells her to do, um, including like waiting for a horrific, like a real critical moment in Tony Stark's life, and then he has Indris turn on him and just like, like be awful and cutting and dump him but be like she love bombs him until he falls in love with her and then she destroys him you know at this key moment um and uh he stain and his so he has tony Stark locked out of various business deals Mm. and he starts buying up all the available stark industries stock through hidden shell companies so he's really coming at him from just all these different angles and tony does not know what's going on at all we do the reader we know and when he finally um finds out like stain is the mastermind behind all of it and everything's slipping through his its fingers it's too late to do anything about it like stain I think has the government destroy all the Iron Man suits except for one. Um, Tony loses all his apartments and properties. His personal assets are frozen and he can't touch any money. Um, and it, it all after uh, Moomji um, like, like dumps him, turns him down, spurns him, whatever. Um, that's the final straw. And mm. Tony catastrophically relapses into alcoholism. 
Ooh. He's just been pushed from all. He has everything. The company's taken away from him, money, everything. Um, and uh, Stark ends up drunk, falling off the wagon. He relinquishes the Iron Man armor, leaves it behind, and just walks off and becomes a homeless vagrant. That, that's the thing with Tony Stark. That's his vulnerability. He always got that pit of spikes below him. All you have to do is knock him off balance. There's that feeling, isn't it? Yeah. I, I like that because it's a very real vulnerability. It's very, it's, you know, that any moment there could be a relapse. It's a shame we don't have anything like it in the movies, really. Well, the closest we get is Iron Man 2. But it's kind I of his de- depression. There's a bit of his depression. It, it's, it's more, his... yeah, it's more, de- it's more of a thing like, oh, he's a bit, you know, hit, hit, he's, he's a. He's hit the rock bottom or whatever, but it's not. It, it's, it's not alcoholism. It's and we kind of no, no. It's like we, we kind of get it after. It's mainly played up after Avengers. After he's like just um, fought off that thing and detonated that bomb and nearly died. We see in Iron Man, he's really rocked by, it, isn't he? Yeah, Iron, Iron Man three. three. Yeah, there's, there's definitely PTSD or something yeah. going on there. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, back to the film. While watching Stark Industries stock slide on TV. Pepper is called into Stark's workshop where Tony has built a more efficient arc reactor and needs his assistant's assistance in installing the new component. Later... Love hel- that scene. Love that scene. It's it's just great. Apparently, it was a fake... Obviously, a fake torso. It wasn't, like, uber special effects. Fake torso, him at a different angle, and it's just reaching... It's the reaching into the chest and the squelchy noise, even though it's not flesh or anything. That's just residue from the battery or... Residue yeah. from the reactor, Yeah. It's just the. I, I didn't really mean any of that. I just meant the 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 the, the interplay between Pepper and Tony again. It's oh just yeah, yeah, he's just very like, oh, you have to do. It, otherwise, I might die. And he's doing it so dead. It's pan. so good. So 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 good. Uh, later, with the help of Jarvis, Tony's AI assistant, Stark starts work on a new version of the powered suit he built. Meanwhile, in the Afghan desert, the Ten Rings recover the components of Stark's first powered armored suit while a heavily scarred Raza examines them. Back at Stark's lab, Tony starts testing the individual components of his new powered suit with mixed results. Obadiah visits Tony's home and urges Stark to bring something to the board to show what direction the company is going in, as the board is not confident in Tony's direction for the company. But Tony is keeping his new creation a secret from Obadiah. It's been... uh... Yeah, speaking of that chess scene, it has been a long time since I've seen Tony with an arc reactor. That as soon as I saw that that scene, all like it all like recognition came back of oh yeah, he's got a hole in his chest, and I just right, winced, yeah. winced. Also, uh, as uh, as King Canuck correct rightly mentioned, he mentioned the admin, didn't he? Was it him Mate, or someone yes, else? Yes, that's right. Yeah, he, he mentioned. Yeah, I love this. It's like watching Tony try try the jet boots. Uh, for the first time, uh, you know, on mentioning 10% thrust capacity and it going g- hilariously wrong uh, gives me flashbacks to trying interesting creations out on Kerbal Space Program, a heavily physics-based thing where you're trying to... I, I tried to do, like, a thing, that, like an aircraft that would lift up like a, like a, like a, with jets facing the ground. But you've got to get the centre of gravity right because otherwise it flips over, so you've got to adjust it. And I'm just, like, watching right. the scene going, I know exactly the frustration... And anticipation yeah, it's the same thing, isn't it? Really, yeah. Yeah, Tony Stark. Yeah, yeah. The, I, I, the reason the reason this scene is fun 
and the Batman Begins one isn't is because they put fun things into this scene. Yes. And there's no fun things in the Batman Begins one. It's just a slow montage. Well, the Batman Begins one, there are little wry comments and stuff, but that's about it. Nothing nothing that makes it entertaining. Just like, oh, yeah, it's true. You would have to order them in bulk, otherwise it would be suspicious. (laughs) Ha-ha. Yeah, you're right. That's You're absolutely right on that one, even though I do like the Batman Begins ones as well for a different reason. Anyway. Going back to his workshop, Tony manages his first successful flight in the first version of his new powered suit, complete with advanced heads-up display and a remote link with Jarvis. Ignoring Jarvis's caution, however, Tony takes the plunge and launches the suit out of the mansion and into the skies of Los Angeles before testing the maximum altitude of the suit. As the power armor freezes up, the jets cut out, causing Tony to tumble to the earth without any power. Rebooting the system just in time, Tony skims past traffic in downtown and flies back to the mansion almost safely. Out of the armour and in his workshop, Tony unwraps a present from Pepper Potts, his old arc reactor in a glass case with the message, proof that Tony Stark has a heart embossed on it. Back at the Ten Rings compound, Raza watches his troops try to reconstruct Tony's prototype armour. I remember watching uh, this flight sequence for the first time and I was impressed. Like, while it's not as flashy or as sophisticated as modern MCU films, it still feels great. I think, I think, I think all of it holds up, the whole movie, yeah. All of it, yeah. Also, the crash into the garage at the end is genuinely hilarious timing. Yeah, it is, I, I, it is but I still think the funniest thing is the helper robot. The, the, what, I forget, it has a name or a number or something. Oh, I can't remember, but it's just like with the, with the uh, fire. It, it, it has so much personality. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, it's really, it's a really, I remember it, I remember coming away from the movie remembering that and thinking that's like a key highlight of this movie is that, that little, uh, you know, armed, arm robot thing. Do you want to um, remind, what they remind me of? You know what I'm going to say, don't you? I don't know. The Scutters from Red Dwarf. Ah, it reminds me of the lamp in Pixar. Oh, yes. Because <laughs> it has yes. that, that yes. Watsy quality to it. That's yeah, the scutters, cute. scutters in Red Dwarf as well. Yeah. Cute, funny quality. Yeah. And it, it, you right. somehow feel it has a face and a personality, yeah, despite yeah. the fact it's just like some metal prongs. Yeah, absolutely. It really does put show in there. So. The first proper Iron Man suit. What can you tell us about the first proper suit that Tony builds? Not the prototype, the first proper one. Does it have AI Java system? Does it have heads-up display? Does it have all these fancy whatnot? Does it have Does it have a transistor in it, Rob? Does it have two transistors cancelling each other out? <laughs> it, it it does not have um, <laughs> it does not have AI Jarvis. I'm afraid. Um, so it, it's a little bit later in 1963 that he builds his. Because well, he he develops the first armor. The first armor. Um, he ends up painting it gold, but then the first proper red and gold suit, like we see here, um, is is later in 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 this first year, nineteen sixty three. Steve Ditko comes aboard and they redesign and, and create this. The, the, he has this kind of disastrous battle with a criminal known as Mister Doll, um, mm. and um, coming soon to obscure Marvel, Mister Doll, um, and part Mister Doll basically has. Um, um, Voodoo dolls, so he and and they actually work. So whoever he builds a voodoo doll of, he can hurt and kill. So Iron Man's like, I gotta build something that looks different. But he also realizes that the, the 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 first the first like the Mark One armor is far too cumbersome um, and far too heavy. Um, 
and it, it creates an excessive use of energy just to kind of walk around with it and su- support the weight of it. So he he completely redesigns it, sleeker, lightweight armor. Um, and this is the design then, the red and gold that carries on for the rest of Iron Man's existence virtually. Um, it's lighter, it's flexible, it's more maneuverable, it has points of articulation. Um, he describes the, the new chest plate as being wafer thin. Wafer thin. So um, he can uh, he can wear that much more easily underneath his clothes. Nice. Um, and excessively, like I can barely feel it's being worn. Mm. I I, I kind of want him to if he's if you're gonna do the thing of he's got to wear something. Yeah. It should be cumbersome. It should be. It should hurt him. It should yeah. be noticeable and a, and a problem. Otherwise, what's or, the point? Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah, yeah it doesn't absolutely. add or take away. Anything, oh no, I've got to do this thing. Oh, you know what? I've redesigned it and it's fine now. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I overcome all challenges with absolute ease. There is no sense of suspense. Yeah, but, but I know why you're here. Well, you're here to talk about the magnets. Let's talk about the magnets. Yes, this is what it's all about. This will be the title of the episode: Magnets Galore <laughs> with Iron Man. So, in, unlike the first set of armor, he only has to uh. put on certain parts of the armor, like the gauntlets. Right. Mm. Uh, the shoulder piece, the helmet, and then the bits in between snap together using magnets. So it's modular. As you, you I guess say. if you want to say modular. that, sure. Um, and so uh, yes, that I remember that. That's a key scene in this issue that I remember reading as a kid because I have my dad's sixties comics um, of all this stuff snapping together and thinking, "Oh, that's really cool." Um, it doesn't have an AI system, but it does have a radio and an aerial. <laughs> he can listen. To kiss, he can communicate with our favourite US One, Ulysses Archer. No, why would you bring him up again? <laughs> Why can't we just talk about magnets and transistors without talking about a weird trucker? <laughs> yeah, honestly, if you're missing Obscure Marvel, you're missing out on a lot. This um, is the point we, in the podcast we, where it's like we have so much backstory and in-jokes that we can just do this. We talk about Marvel's uh, Marvel's very first and only truck-driving superhero, Ulysses yeah. Archer. Ooh-wee! <laughs> what, what's his superpower? He has a CB radio in his head. Um, anyway, the armor does in, in include um, like what would event? So the, you know the repulsor rays that come out of his hand. So those are repulsor rays. They're not lasers. They're just repulsors. No, it's, they're called repulsor rays. Now, okay. what they actually are, mm. it changes on what the plot needs. <laughs> is it a beam of energy? What does it do? Can it? It is doesn't it really matter. Bit, yeah, no, it doesn't matter. But they yeah. are called repulsor rays. Okay. Um, and he used them to destroy things, to knock people over. To I guess sometimes it must be a blast of energy of some description. Um, now, originally they come out that he has this repulse, this magnetic repulsing energy that comes out of the fingers of the gloves. But then later Ooh. on, yeah, later on in this armor moves them at some stage they come out of the palm which is the kind of the iconic way that he blasts people it's so um, cool that pose it's like mm, spider-man's web swinging whip yeah whip but this is like hold up the hand and it's yeah. so cool um this armor would eventually resurface in, in more modern recent years um piloted by an ai of tony's own mind that he built at some stage in the past a backup of his mo mind that um appears as a hologram being projected like the the suit of arm that the ai takes over the mark ii suit 
um, at a period of time where Tony Stark is dead and it replaces him. Um, That's quite spooky. It projects an hologram, um, like, but not like a perfect hologram, like a uh, a blue light hologram of his Star head Wars hologram to communicate yeah. with people. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> time for you to consider what it is you want to be in this life do you want to consume or do you want to contribute because two yes. types of people in this world will who are you what kind of person are you will i am i am i, I i'm a lover and a giver not a fighter that's right he's a giver he's a contributor <laughs> i consume and then i contribute to replace to replenish like the amazon rainforest of old if you cut down for paper <laughs> You must replenish. And this podcast is in the same vein. If you're going to cut us down, i.e. listen without giving us any money, then you must replace and replenish, i.e. give us some money. That um, could have been a line like Johnny Cochran, OJ's lawyer. <laughs> if you diminish, you must replenish. <laughs> you must, you must, you must. Listen, guys, we know you need this. We know you need the history, the context, the deep dive, the trivia, the history. We know that you're an MVM fan. We know, unfortunately, there are some great people out there, but unfortunately, a lot of you are still not doing the right thing. You're not stepping up. You're not replenishing the stock. You're not thinking about how many hours of entertainment you get from us. And you're not thinking about how many hours it takes me and Will to create this for you. If you're listening, we made it for you. There's a level of responsibility there, because listening without contributing, tantamount to theft, I mean, I don't want to say it. It's tantamount to theft. It's stealing ideas from our heads and words from our mouths. This podcast is only possible because of patreon.com slash Marvel versus Marvel. The place where people join the community, contribute, give back. And they support us for just £3 a month, Will. Yes. Did you notice £3 a month going out of your account? I mean, yeah, you would. But then you realise, what's it for? Did I have a mm. coffee? Oh, no. I bought myself hours and hours and hours of entertainment. Hours and hours and hours of entertainment for just £3 a month. Supported a show that gives to so many people, including myself. There's great content on there. There's early access. There's full-length bonus episodes. £3 will get you access to Obscure Marvel every single month and some other cool mini-bonus episodes. It'll give you our thanks and our love. And uh, There's lots of other awesome things on Patreon.com. Slash Marvel versus Marvel that you can get into the other content and the early access and things. This month we dropped a full-length bonus episode, two hours and 22 minutes long, exploring Maximum Carnage. Mm. <clears throat> the biggest Spider-Man story of the 90s, arguably, maybe, maybe not. It's huge. Carnage, Venom, Captain America, Cloak and Dagger, tons. Um... And uh, I know you were you were not ready for it, really, were you? I was not ready. No, 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 no. There's a lot going on there that you were like, "Who's this character? What's happening? What is it? What is a demo goblin? Why is there a <laughs> doppel- an evil doppelganger of Spider-Man who are cloak and dagger? Like, there's tons to get into with this story, um, and that's what we did, spinning off of our Mac- of our of our Let There Be Carnage episode. Um, and next month in February, since Quantum Mania is in the screens 
Um, we are doing a deep dive bonus episode into the biggest Kang story of all time, the Kang Dynasty. That's right. It is the name of a future MCU movie for a reason. It's a big story. Kang taking on the Avengers, taking on the whole world. And we've got a deep dive into it in February, but it's exclusively for people who support us on patreon.com slash marvel versus marvel hey there's also uh obscure marvel every month there's also our new comedy podcast rob versus will um and we uh, get into the worst marvel merchandise of all time that's a bit of a fun that's an extra thank you um so guys if you sign up and you can get access to over 30 full-length bonus episodes over 27 mini shows including obscure marvel and you can get early access to every show but most importantly you'll be giving back to the people that give back to you to the people that put so much into the show for your enjoyment for your entertainment for your uh, need and thirst for marvel history and trivia we bring you all that on patreon.com slash marvel versus marvel and uh you know some of those awesome people will you know what they've been doing this month I mean, I what think have they been know. doing? What have they been doing? Buying tickets? Yeah! Because this podcast, bringing you a live show, 25th of March, mm. at the Arena Theatre in Wolverhampton. We've teamed up with the Arena Theatre to put together a, uh, a live podcast diving into What If, the Marvel Multiverse, Captain Britain, and Agent Carter. And we're putting it on stage again. Our award-winning live show, that scooped the best uh, best show ever award, I think, at the Leicester Comedy Festival, beating out TV stars like Mark Watson, who used to advertise cider, and now <laughs> now he loses awards to me. Um, <laughs> that's what that's what happened in his career. Um, man, we had a great 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 time doing it in Leicester Leicester Comedy Festival last mm. year. But what we didn't really get to do was meet and greet people, say hello, yeah. chat, and hang out. It was a bit weird with that theatre, and I don't know if they wanted us there too much. We've mentioned, like, mentioned it a few times, yes. Oh God, it was annoying. It was just slightly odd. Like, the people running it were students at the time, and they couldn't keep the bar open or something. Mm. Anyway, that's not going to happen this time. The Arena Theatre, great people. We've got a great relationship with them, um, and we're going to be able to hang out with you all. We're going to say hello. You can ask us anything, have a drink, chat, sit down. We're going to be moving around and seeing everyone. We're going to be... You know, circulating. We'll yeah. have to go separately and circulate. Take pictures, ask us about stuff, tell us what episodes you want to see in the future. But you can meet us. And we've kept these prices super low. It is the uh, 25th of March at the Arena Theatre in Wolverhampton. Tickets are just £5. The URL for the uh, tickets to buy your own is in the show notes for this episode right now. Expand them show notes, get that URL. Or you can head over to us on Twitter at Marvel versus our pinned tweet right now is a link to get those um, to get those seats. We're really excited about doing this. Um, it's going to be really really cool. Twenty fifth of March at the Arena Theatre in Wolverhampton. Back to the film. As Tony instructs Jarvis to construct the first mark of his power suit, Stark speeds off to crash a charity event held by Stark Industries. At the bar, Tony is approached by Agent Coulson for an appointment and dances with Pepper Potts. After an intense conversation about their employer-employee relationship, the two almost kiss, but Tony walks away to get Pepper a drink. At the bar, reporter Christine Everhart grills him again, this time for Stark Industries' weapons being used by the Ten Rings to attack Yinsen's home village, Golmyra. 
yesterday. Alarmed that his company is potentially arming terrorists, he questions Obadiah, who informs Tony that it was he who locked him out of the board. Also, Stan Lee has a cameo here as Hef. Yeah, that was an interesting one. Yeah, just saying, oh, it's Hugh Hefner, but it's actually Stan Lee, and it's just a nice little... He did used to hang out at the Playboy Mansion loads in the, in the 70s. Crazy. Has Stark ever lost control of his company in Marvel Comics? Uh, yes, um, as he as Abadiah Stain drove him to alcoholism, um, and he abandons the role of Iron Man and becomes a homeless vagrant. Stain, with the help of the U.S. government and Shield, succeeds in buying out Stark International, which he then renames Stain International. Oh, what a, what a move! Um, and Stain proceeds to uh, carry on manufacturing and supplying munitions and weapons to Shield and and the the U.S. military and other countries that can that can pay for them. And uh, yeah, Tony Stark is kind of bombing around, um, and he's not either running a company or being Iron Man anymore. In fact, when he kind of regains his sobriety, um, he is no way back into um, to to his company. Ooh. So he joins up with Rhodey and two other friends, Morley Irwin, and his sister, whose name is so it's like Clit Amenstra. <laughs> I'm not joking. Maybe it's meant to be Clytemenstra, but... Oh, no. Anyway. That's, that's um, And they, they set up a new company in the... It's the 80s. They do it in Silicon Valley, and it's called Circuit Maximus. Um, and it's very hip, and it becomes a... It's quite a brief existence, but it becomes a very successful company. Um and that's when it's it, when he's working for uh, this startup that he's created from the ground up. He um, and he's no longer got access to his company. He starts building brand new designs, brand new inventions, a brand new set of armor as part of his mm. recuperative therapy to keep his mind off alcohol. And that's when he builds the vastly more powerful silver centurion armor which becomes his look in the 80s yes you've mentioned uh, you've mentioned this armor before we'll we'll get into it in uh, iron man 2 remastered fantastic seeing the refugees flee war from golmyra on the news while testing his new weaponry tony stark decides that now is the time to test out the full potential of a suit of armor Flying immediately to Golmyra, Stark arrives just as Ten Rings troops are about to execute an innocent father in front of his family. Landing in the middle of the combat scene, Tony immediately takes out half of the Ten Rings troops before the remaining terrorists take the women and children hostage. Lowering his weapons, Tony is able to quickly take out the hostage takers in one go using hidden shoulder-mounted guns. Before jetting away, Tony drags the terrorist leader out from a building and dumps him in front of the hostages, saying, He's all yours. This might be the best scene of the film. It's just... It's just great. It's just he flies in there and saves everyone quick. It's really good. It's really cool. It, 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 for me, uh, any of the scenes of the, di- of the, of the, of the sparkling dialogue between... Uh, those are my scenes. This is a really oh, cool yeah. scene, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it is a typical good guy swings in perfectly and takes everyone out, but it's done really well. But also, could just be me, you know, as we said before, like uh, someone else mentioned about Robocop and Robocop 2, uh, influencing some of the bits. But I think the close-up shot 
you get a close-up shot of, uh, that goes down to his waist of Tony's hand lowering to his hip. And the way the fingers sort of waggle, they sort of, you know, he does, he does that thing with the fingers where he's like, you know, waiting to use them, you know, like stretching them. It feels like the exact kind of shot you get when someone's about to draw in a Western. It's that... Oh yeah, it's not just it's 100% what they were doing. Yeah. yeah. yeah there's, that's, there's a lot that's what I the way that the way that's the way that that shot is set up and composed is is very much a a, a western. And what's it telling us, Will? What's it telling us? It's telling us he's getting ready to suddenly fire at them very quickly. It is, but broader than that, um westerns are about um men with uh, weapons instilling their own law and justice in a lawless land. Um, ah, the subtext. There we, we go. What we're getting here is Tony to start becoming becoming that gunslinger, yeah. becoming that guy that rides into town and says, "Mike makes right." Um, I ah, oh, I feel stupid for not spotting that because that's such obvious subtext. Oh well, no, not really. You could just just staring at things, isn't it? It's it's very very well spotted. So in the original stories. Uh, was Iron Man's first, shall we say, public outing like this? Was it a war zone? Was it a, was it something else? What 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 happened when it's his first proper adventure? He went to the circus, Will. Oh, for the love of God, <laughs> kill me now! And then some lions and tigers got free and were going to hurt people. So he chases <laughs> the Iron Man armor and he uh, he stops the uh, he stops the lions and tigers from hurting anybody. He electrocutes them, basically, until they do as he says. I'll just send them some small electrical charges so they do what I say. Cool. Uh, Thanks, Riot Cop Iron Man. Oh, for the (laughs) Um, love of God. And then he goes back to his date. And he's like, did you see that Iron Man fellow? And she's like, yes, he was horrifying. Um, He was terrifying with that dull grey armour. I want him to look more like a knight in shining armour. And so he immediately runs home and spray paints the armour bright gold. Um, and he's just all yellow gold from that point on. Uh, um, like like butter. But his first... You like butter. Because like, I, I just remember the picture you showed me in that... Uh, obscure in Marvel our, episode, obscure yeah. Obscure Marvel episodes where he looks like butter. Because he's being melted by... The Melter! Yeah, it looks like um, butter. Uh, but his first kind of like I would say out of the ordinary that's his first public outing Mm. but his first kind of actual fight I would guess is that he hears about the whole city of Granville has been shut down um, and nobody knows why and he's like (laughs) I'm going to find out because I'm bored and he goes there and the National Guard a a spooky mystery this is not for Iron Man Uh, (laughs) uh, uh, basically a a wall has been built around the entire city limits and it has armed guards and the National Guard can't go and do anything because in their words well town wants to build a wall can build a wall <laughs> <laughs> it's a free country they can build a wall whatever they so want so iron man uses his suit to tunnel underground <laughs> through rock and dirt and stuff and he breaks in inside and inside he finds that the, the townspeople are uh, obeying and worshiping something they called gargantuous Gargantus, sorry. Okay. Um, and they've built a statue to Gargantus that appears to be a giant Neanderthal man with a big club. And they're bowing <laughs> and praying to Gargantus, Gargantus, all hail Gargantus. Um, and then Iron Man sees Gargantus, and it, like the statue is to scale. He is a giant Neanderthal caveman with a massive, right. a massive uh, club. Anyway, they have a bit of a fight. And eventually Iron Man goes, 
I know how to stop you. What do you think he uses, Will? Magnets. <laughs> he uses magnets that surround Gargantus and begin to use their extraordinary power to pull him completely apart because he's a robot. Um, he's so unbuilt, a caveman robot. And Iron Man, like, there's a bit before before we know Gargantus is a robot where Iron Man looks up at the sky at a cloud, looks at a flag that's waving, looks at Gargantos and says, I've solved the mystery. And you go, ooh, what simple explanation is there going to be? Well, the answer is, no one reading could have ever worked this out. Gargantos is a robot. The cloud is a flying saucer. Iron Man went, ah, that cloud's not moving, even though it's windy. The flag's blowing. The cloud's not moving. That must mean aliens. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then he, he reveals that the, he shines a light at the cloud, revealing it to be a flying saucer, and then he just starts throwing magnets at it until they run away. <laughs> and that is the end of Iron Man's first fight as Iron Man. Jeez. <laughs> 1960s Iron Man. <laughs> Just imagine starting doing what I did when I started Batman for the first time and just going, oh, I can't wait for Tony Stark to kick ass. Why is he in a circus? And what did I tell you about going back to read Batman from the start? It's a, a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea. But I just, Why would I, you do it? I have to say, you know, reading a couple of issues, you know, it's quite interesting to see how it's advanced, but you just can't yeah. read it one after the other. Anyway. Flying through the Afghan Valley, Tony is immediately shot down from the sky by a tank, but is able to take it out with one of his missiles. That Tony again tries flying back home, but his activity is picked up by the Air Force, who have no idea what just caused all the carnage. The Air Force calls him Jim Rhodes, who in turn calls Tony, suspicious that Stark Industries technology could be involved with this. Rhodey tells Tony that whatever piece of Stark tech is flying around could be blown to kingdom come by the Air Force's F-22 Raptors. Stark displays incredible manoeuvrability, the kind impossible for planes to achieve, and somehow evades the Raptors. Calling Rhodey, a nearly defeated Tony comes clean with his friend about him being the unidentified aircraft. But just at that moment, one of the Raptors banks to reveal Iron Man clinging onto the bottom of the plane. The other pilot spots Stark and tells his wingman to try and shake him off. After many rolls, Tony is thrown off from the jet, but flies into the other, taking off its wing and forcing the pilot to eject. However, the parachute is jammed. The remaining pilot re-engages uh, re with Tony who is trying to save the falling pilot from certain death. Tony is quickly able to activate the pilot's parachute, saving his life before jetting away. Tony tries to convince Rhodey to see the suit he's been working on, and the whole incident is covered up as a training exercise. However, Obadiah watches this announcement on the news with suspicion. I thought the uh, the Call of Duty military video game soundtrack lent itself really well to scenes like this. I know it's like a typical, like, you know soundtrack you know you hear in these kind of games but it just it just works yeah I, I, I didn't i didn't notice it didn't pick it up but yeah if you've played like like command and conquer generals and call of duty stuff like you you'd, you'd recognize that kind of big sounding or, or you know a film <laughs> soundtrack with the occasional electronic stuff and maybe a, a, a guitar uh but more importantly rob how important is roadie to the iron man story in the comics well he's in, he's not introduced until the late 70s 
Mm. Um, but he then goes on to become hugely important. Um, so important that, that when he's introduced, they update Iron Man's origin story to include Rhodey. Oh, very we, nice. We learn a piece of Iron Man's past never before revealed. Mm. Um, so w- after the very first Iron Man story where he walks off into the jungle after freeing himself, he has another adventure. Um, <laughs> he bumps into uh, Rhodey, who's been shot down. One of his jets Ooh. has been shot down in the in the area. And um, they come across each other and they team up to fight off the rebels in the area. Um, and uh, Tony uses... Rhodey's downed jet to um, to start to recharge his armor. Mm. They trek through the jungle and and um, all sorts of other stuff. They 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 eventually they, it's kind of like Top Gun Maverick esque. They steal an enemy uh, helicopter, I think, and fly to the nearest American encampment. Haven't seen Top Gun Maverick yet, and I plan to. <laughs> they steal planes and do stuff. You know that sounds cool. Um, I, I like the sound of that. It's not as good as everyone says it is. I don't I quite. Know. I didn't get. It was fine. I enjoyed it. I just uh, everyone. I, everyone was saying to me, "This is like Perfect. the best film of the year." And I everyone was like, oh, said, "Awesome! I can't wait." And, and it's an immediate okay. doubt from me when everyone says yeah. that. I was like, no, it can't be. Um. So uh, after the after they kind of like get out of that jam, Tony Stark offers Rhodey a job as a pilot, um, working for Stark International. Uh, or Enterprise, no, yeah, whatever it would be called at the time. Whatever it's called, yeah. Stark Enterprises. Um, as soon as his military career, his stint, you know, his tour of service is over. So they explain that these two characters bonded in a very intense way years ago, and mm. then they built in a reason for why we haven't seen Rhodey ever before in the comics because he's been in the military. There we go. I, li- I like that whole... They're not, they're not retconning, they're just explaining. Yeah, Marvel do a lot yeah. of that, yeah. I like so, that. So... When his when his military stint is over, and he's free to take a job, he turns up and takes the job. Nice. Um, so it has been you know ten, thirteen years or whatever since uh, since they've seen each other. Um, and he start he works Stark Industries, and he, he he starts to help Iron Man in his battles and fights and stuff. And he's very capable, and he's a soldier and all of that. Um, when Stain destroys Tony Stark's life, and he becomes an alcoholic and staggers away into the distance. Mm. Rhodey is left to defend Stark International, and he does that by putting on the Iron Man armor and becoming the new Iron Man. Oh, nice touch. And from that point on, in the 80s, Rhodey is the new Iron Man. Um, And he fights battles. He has to work as... rent himself out as a mercenary in order to get funding for... Stark Enterprises. Um, he fights alongside the Avengers. He's part of the first Secret War. The Iron Man in the very first Secret Wars that we looked at is not Tony Stark. It's it's Rhodey. Oh, okay. I, I don't remember that. That's crazy. Um, and uh, even when Stark recovers, um, he's not interested in, in becoming Iron Man again. He actually gives Rhodey his blessing to be Iron Man 2, the second Iron Man. Um, he's like, off you go, fill your boots. Um, and even uh, Rhodey, Rhodey joins Hawkeye's West Coast branch of the Avengers. Um, so he's a proper fully-fledged superhero in the 80s. Um, uh, although that seems to go... That does end up going awry. What they work out is that the Iron Man's um, cybernetic helmet have not been recalibrated for his brain patterns. Mm. And it starts to not only hurt him... But it causes um, an awful lot of uh, problems 
he paranoia and he starts to fantasize that Tony Stark disapproves of him keeping the armor and wants it back and is trying to undermine him and it builds up to a classic Iron Man versus Iron Man battle um, where Tony puts on uh, the old Mark I armor and uh, fights the new Iron Man uh, Rhodey in a uh, in kind of a, a classic good guy versus good guy clash. Nice. Pepper Potts comes down to Tony's workshop to discover Tony trying to get out of his armored suit, shocked to see it covered in bullet holes. Meanwhile, in Afghanistan, Raza meets with Obadiah Stane, who has been the one arming the Ten Rings with Stark Industries technology. Raza shows Obadiah the reconstructed prototype suit that Stark worked on while imprisoned, intending the design to the suit as a gift for Stane in return for soldiers. But Stane subdues Raza with a high-tech sonic weapon and has the rest of his group killed. It's clear that Obadiah was the one who sent the Ten Rings to kill Stark by hiring the Ten Rings to kill him. Has Obadiah ever used a terrorist group to try and kill Tony like this? In the comics, not, not terrorist group. No, he 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 tends to go for like assassins. Yeah, that um, makes more sense. And being uh, this is one the one thing that makes you go, oh right. So he's he's a classic supervillain. Then, yeah, like he has uh, chess themed assassins. <laughs> <laughs> he loves chess. Yeah. Um, so he has a group called the Chessmen. Um, <laughs> That's it's like stop it. It was supposed to sound cool. You're supposed to be afraid. <laughs> so he has like some of them are like rooks, and some of them are knights, and some are bishops and stuff. Mm. And he sends them to um, to go after um, Iron Man and Tony Stark and Rhodey, yeah, um, big and nerd attack people. <laughs> and they um, they have um, cybernetic weapons that are that make them essentially an even match for Iron Man at the time, mm. um, like electro staffs, anti grav steeds. They fly around on energy lances, so yeah, that's the um, they plague, they plague Iron Man several times and manage to defeat Iron Man because their their um, equipment is quite advanced. Wow, a ste- what is a steed? I thought that was a horse. Yeah, it's like a flying horse. Oh, good. I thought, but I it's thought not. Was... It's not got a head and legs and all that. So it's just it's a it's like a, a, a flying bike. A but flying, it's called, yeah. They're chessmen, so and they're the knights, so it's called of a course, steed. Of course. At his workshop, Pe- Tony asks Pepper Potts for help in tracking down his company's secret illegal shipments, but seeing her boss put himself into harm's way so recklessly makes her threaten to quit. Talking Pepper Potts around to his idea, Tony's assistant sneaks into Obadiah Stane's office and hacks his computer. Inside the database, she finds plans for a larger suit of powered armour, as well as a ransom video previously filmed by the Ten Rings when Tony was held captive, saying that they captured Tony Stark under orders from Stane. Also, the group reneged when they realised they had a direct route to Tony Stark's weapons. The next second, Pepper is shocked to see Stane suddenly enter the room. As Stane calmly talks to her and pours them a whiskey, Pepper quickly finishes up and uh, what she's doing on the computer before he sees the screen. After a very intense but innocent conversation, Potts exits the office with the downloaded data, but Obadiah notices the download complete message on his computer, knowing that Potts was up to something. Down in the lobby, Potts meets Agent Coulson, intending to tell him of Stane's activities as Obadiah menacingly watches them leave. 
That was a I, what I really liked about that is that they built they they built Audrey Coulson's um, recurring gag throughout the the movie so far. Is the recurring no, gag is he's, he's um, brushed off, isn't it? It is. Yes. Thank you for interrupting me to tell me what I was about to say. You're right. I just want to win sometimes, <laughs> Rob. I just want to win the composition of conversation. Oh, okay. So the, re- the recurring gag is that that he keeps talking about this very boring government department he works for. And nobody wants to talk to him again many minutes. And then at this moment, she's like, yes, yes, I desperately want to talk to you, man who works <laughs> yeah. for the government. Yeah. You and your other agents and your limo, like it pays it pays off. And it's, it, yeah. it's, um, it's a good bit. Very, very, very good. So Pepper Potts, very capable here. I mean, in the comics, she is essentially Stark's assistant, right? Yeah, she's presented much, much better in this movie than she yeah. had been in the comics. In the um, 60s. Up until, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but any so so she um is his secretary, she becomes infatuated with Tony Stark, um, and she wants to basically get him to notice her as the secretary. And so she, and, and and he because in he lo- uh, he I think he's meant to be in love with her as well, mm. but because of this heart problem he has and his secret life as Iron Man, he never wants her to be hurt by by him. So he ignores her and only has relationships with like one night stands with floozies and models and actresses and stuff. <laughs> with floozies, yeah. But it's all right in front of her, which is uh, hurts her. But he's like, yeah. it should hurt you. You should stop being in love with me. Um, oh dear. And then a love triangle emerges um, bet- between her, Tony Stark, and Happy Hogan, um, Tony's driver slash bodyguard. Um, because Happy Hogan is in love with Pepper, Pepper's in love with Tony, Tony's in love with Pepper, but can't say anything. Um, and uh, it ends up being um, Tony Stark who who pushes Pepper and Happy Hogan together because mm. that means that she has someone, a good man, who's always going to be with her. Um, and they end up getting they end up getting married, um, Pepper and Happy Hogan, and. They leave the series essentially. Um, mm. They leave the series in the mid seventies. Uh, she's kind of like an, by that point, she's an outdated character, the lovelorn secretary pining for the boss. Mm. That's kind of the, the love triangle has been played out after yeah, ten years. It's not great. And so Pepper and Happy Hogan leave the series, and does she doesn't return to the Iron Man comic for about twenty years? Okay. Um, she becomes a re- re- regular supporting character in the uh, late 90s again and love interest again mm. and made some sporadic appearances from that point but by this point in the, this movie does more for her than the comics really had up until this point 2008 a great writer by the name of Matt Fraction takes oh, over I love that name takes over the Iron Man series um, in 2008 and and really puts Pepper back into the mix. Um, and that series that goes on from 2008 beyond, after the movie comes out, um, really presents Pepper in a much more prominent role, much more capable p- character. She takes, she becomes, I think, the CEO of the co- of the Stark Company, and she ends up piloting her own advanced um, suit of armour as well. Nice. In the Stark's industry lab... Obadiah Stane is angered at the scientist's inability to replicate the miniature arc reactor that Tony was able to build while in a cave with a bunch of scraps. At home, Tony goes to answer a phone call from Pepper Potts, but is suddenly subdued by Obadiah using the same sonic weapon he used on Raza. As Tony lies on his couch, helpless, 
Obadiah arrogantly tells Stark about he, about how he was uh, behind the kidnap, as Stain removes the arc reactor from Tony Stark's chest, intending to use the coveted technology to power new weapons of the future. Elsewhere, Pepper Potts phones Rhodey about Obadiah's role in Tony's kidnapping and drives to Stark Industries with Agent Coulson and his men to apprehend Obadiah Stane. In Tony's workshop, an incredibly weak and dying Stark crawls over to his original arc reactor that Pepper had put into a commemorative case and reinstalls it in his chest. Meanwhile, Obadiah installs the new arc reactor into the chest of his new suit of powered armour. Again, the robot does has a nice little touch here. At the last minute, the robot helps Tony reach the yeah. arc reactor. Lovely yeah. little touch. Lots of personality. Very cute. So, in the original stories, does Stone build himself a huge suit of armour like this? Uh, yeah. So, when he um, steals Tony's company from under him, um, although all the Iron Man armour has been destroyed and Rhodey's got mm. the last one, uh, Stain actually kind of takes that legal action to try and get Rhodey to hand that back over, but that he doesn't know who the new Iron Man is because um, it's all a hidden mystery. So, but he's uh, he tells the government that if you see Iron Man, he is a criminal because he's stolen that armor from mm. Stain, who are the rightful owners. Um, but he also finds uh, in 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 Stark's company notes and information on the Iron Man armor. Um, they're far from complete, but Stain has a team of scientists get to work on these notes and blueprints and tells them to make something bigger and better than the Iron Man. And they build <laughs> the Iron Monger. The Iron Monger. Iron Monger, this huge, yeah. hulking, bigger, you know, it's like a, a, a almost a giant Iron Man suit, um, which is, he claims is far superior to Iron Man. Um, and it is. It is far superior to the suit of armour that Rhodey is wearing and that Tony Stark used to wear. Far superior. Um, what he doesn't know, Tony has invented the Silver Centurion <laughs> armour. Um, he even considers um, selling a fleet of them to the highest bidder. Um, but he, uh, he, uh, he ends up deciding he wants to keep... If he's going to build an army, he wants to keep it for himself so he can tell any country to do whatever he wants. Ooh, very tricky. Rhodey arrives in Stark's house looking for Tony and sees his friend lying on the floor. Tony comes to and gets up to help Pepper, knowing that she's in danger. At Stark Industries, with the help of Philip Coulson and S.H.I.E.L.D. agents, Pepper breaks into Obadiah's lab, just as he's preparing his suit. At Stark's workshop, Tony shows off his repaired suit to Rhodey and flies off, leaving Rhodey staring at another piece of powered armour with temptation before leaving in his sports car. At the Stark Industries lab, Potts and the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents are shocked to see Obadiah Stane's battle suit fully operational and attacking them. Knowing that the Fully arc- operational, sorry. <laughs> what, what's that from? Um, uh, Jedi. Ah, uh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah that, I remember that now. Knowing that the arc reactor Tony is using isn't designed for prolonged use with his suit, Stark hurries fast as he can to Stark Industries. Again, forgot Coulson was in this uh, a lot more than I remembered. He's got a role, isn't he? A real role. He's got a proper role. He's not a quick cameo or a quick thing. He's actually properly in this, and I bloody forgot. 
Outside the building, Potts calls Tony, telling him to come quick, but just then the ground behind her crumbles as Obadiah tunnels through the lab. Before Stain can kill Pepper with an arm-mounted Gatling gun, Tony flies in and slams Stain down through the lab and out into a busy highway outside. Jarvis informs Tony that power is at 19%. Stain launches, sorry, Stain knocks Tony back with a motorcycle before slamming Stark into the side of a bus and launching a missile into the wreckage. However, Iron Man flies out from the explosion and hovers above Stain. Noticing the upgrades Tony made to his suit, Stain shows Stark some upgrades of his own. As the Hulk giant of Stain's suit activates his rocket boots and takes to the sky. Now, I'm not going to get into engineering again in regards to uh, 10% thrusts and all that, but the rockets on Stain's suit, oh, that'd be tricky to get them like that. He's too top-heavy. No, he his- no, no, they're science fiction rockets on a science fiction suit. They did exactly what they did. This is not, this is not science, it's science fiction. That's me told. (laughs) (laughs) So, what happens when these two first fight, when Iron Man fights the Ironmonger in the comics? What is their first battle like? Well, when Stark's homeless, he he befriends a a, a pregnant homeless woman and helps her deliver the child. She dies in childbirth. um, And Tony promises to protect and look after the child. Um, And that that event and that vow helps pull him out of you know shock him out of his of his depression and he starts to recover um and that's when he builds the uh, circuits maximus and starts building the silver centurion armor um and then he goes after um he goes after uh, stain and stain goes after him um sorry that's it stain goes after tony not the other way around um, he wants to um, drive him back into alcoholism, and uh, or kill him off, um, and they have a big confront- confrontation. Stain sends the chessmen uh, against the chessmen. Chessmen attack against um, against Iron Man, but they are no match for the Silver Centurion armor, um, and he blasts through them. Uh, and then Stain puts on the Ironmonger armor. Um, and they have they are very their very first fight. Uh, it's the Ironmonger is more powerful than the previous set of armor, but the Silver Centurion is like it can turn completely invisible. <laughs> it's thought controlled rather than a lot more clunky like the other ones are. It's just next level. Stain uh, resorts to kidnapping the baby of the homeless woman that Stark had befriended. Um, mm. And he holds it in his ironmonger hand and tells Stark to remove his helmet and surrender, or he will crush the baby <laughs> in his in his giant hands. Oh god. Stain is awful. That's an awful man right there. Jeez. So, remembering the altitude issues from testing the suit. Tony figures out a way to beat him and lures Stain into the sky. Edward's Air Force base picks up Stain and Stark's activity, but before they can scramble fighter jets again, Rhodey tells the commander to leave it, as it's another <clears throat> training exercise. Stain's hulking suit follows Tony as they increase altitude, and Tony's suit continues to drain exponentially. High above the clouds, Stain grabs Tony, telling his soon-to-be former partner that Obadiah's suit is superior in every way. 
To Stane's surprise, however, Tony simply responds with, How did you solve the icing problem? Leaving Stane's incredibly iced up suit to suddenly cut out and plummet. The, has the icing problem ever come up in the comics at all? Has this ever happened? Because I like this aspect a lot. You would. Um, no, it's. I'm, af- I'm, af- I'm afraid it's an incredibly... I-, I view it as an incredibly kind of pedestrian movie writer idea um, that, that doesn't... The, the actual idea isn't really the issue, but, I mean, I'm sure there's been something... Any technical problem has come up hundreds of times in the comics, but it's not really... You know, it's not really a focus or a attention or anything. But the the idea of this, this is in so many movies. Mm. In Act One, we learn um, yes. that character doesn't like oranges. He's allergic to them. And then finally in Act Three, oranges, of course. He's allergic yeah. to oranges. Put orange juice into his mouth to defeat. Like, it's so pedestrian. It's so know. Route One movie. Like, that I, I don't think there'd ever be a comic book based around something, you know, story that's resolved like this. But not say, not not the comics, but this is just this is just a uh, I don't know. It's a it's a when people have called this a simple movie, a simple mm. plot. This is the thing that leaps out to me. What they're talking about, not yeah. the rest really. The rest I think is really pretty interesting and different. But no, I I I you know. I mean, he fights a guy called Blizzard who ices up the armor, and presumably he came up with a solution for that pretty quick. I can imagine. Whew. As Tony views Stane's fall while hovering, his jets start to cut out as Jarvis tells him that his battery is at 2%. Switching to emergency backup power, Tony is able to safely, if ungraciously, land back on top of the Stark's industry building. But as he calls Pepper to tell him that he's okay, Stane enters and starts to crush Tony's suit with his superior strength. As Tony struggles, he's able to let off a chaff system that staggers Stane, allowing Tony to escape his grip. Hiding from the fearsome Stane, Stark calls Pepper and instructs her to overload the large arc reactor. Outside, Tony jumps on Stane's back and starts tearing out components, cutting off Obadiah's suit vision. Stane throws Stark over his shoulder, tearing off and crushing Tony's helmet, with Stark landing on the glass ceiling of the lab. As Stane mocks Tony before opening fire on Stark, Pepper tells Tony that the arc reactor is ready and he needs to get off the roof. Stane destroys the glass ceiling that Stark is standing on, causing him to grab onto support beams with his bare hands. Before Stane can finish off Tony, Stark tells Pepper to push the button on the arc reactor, fully knowing that the overload could kill him. Pepper slams the overload button, causing a bright beam of arc reactor energy to shoot to the sky, launching Tony away and subduing Obadiah, who tumbles down through the lab, into the arc reactor, exploding it and killing Stane. As I said before, I hinted at before earlier in the podcast, it's it's a pretty low-key fight for Marvel, but as a final fight, it still works. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. It does work. It does. It does feel. I. I it felt. It felt uh, very root. Again, I felt this fight was a bit <laughs> quite route one, quite pedestrian, quite kind of like. Yeah. yeah, okay, that's that's how it would end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's 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 how it would end. But you know, it, 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 for what it was, it was good. Yeah, it was executed very well. It just. I don't think it was that interesting. Okay. How does Iron Man beat Stain in the comic books, though? Is it is it interesting? Is it icing up? Is it with a transistor? What is it, Rob? Does he take uh, it to the circus? <laughs> <laughs> he, um, it's inter- The interesting thing is what happens after he beats him. Really, mm. um, Iron Man uh, picks up that there are ec- there are these odd um, 
kind of communication frequencies in the air that he lets him know that um, Stain is using an outside computer to help him pilot the Ironmonger. (laughs) And he basically gambles that Stain is not experienced enough as a pilot to be able to control the massive armor on his own. So he tracks the signal back to a nearby building in, in Saints National and blows the building up, um, <laughs> destroying whatever computer that was helping to pilot the Ironmonger armor. Um, and uh, essentially, Stain's Ironmonger armor kind of uh, shuts down because he's, he's unable to control it himself and Stark rescues the baby and everything. Um, but then, upon the moment of Stain's defeat... When it's all, Stark tells him it's all over, and you know he's going to trial, he's going to prison, everything's going to come out, um, and uh, I'm going to claw everything back from you on a public scale. Uh, Stain says to him, "But have you truly? Have you won truly? I think." And I was, I was picture this being read by, um, oh, his name is Robert Alexander in the office. But what's the what's the actor? He plays Ultron. Oh, Jay! Oh, God! It's uh, James Spader. James Spader, but as Robin, specifically his voice. Um, but have <laughs> I you am won? the Lizard King? <laughs> He's so freaky. But have you won truly? I think not. For <laughs> I, I have, need to rewatch that. For I have always believed that the essential part of winning is to enjoy your opponent's humiliation at losing. That is the real reward of the game. Of that, I can deprive you. And then he puts the Ironmonger gauntlet to his head and blows his own brains out with an energy blast, mirroring how his father took his own life when he was a child. God, Um, that's dark. And that's the end of Obadiah Stain. That is very dark. As Rhodey speaks at a live press conference about the the incident at Stark Industries on TV, Tony recuperates from his injuries with the help of Pepper Potts, reading a newspaper with the headline, Who is the Iron Man? Agent Coulson hands Tony an alibi, freeing Stark from all suspicion over the incident, as well as hushing up as to what actually happened with Obadiah Stain, before telling Potts that S.H.I.E.L.D. will be seeing them in the future. With a short moment to themselves before Tony needs to speak at a press conference about the incident, Stark and Potts discuss his future as a potential superhero, as well as the hidden identity that comes with it. Making a statement at the conference, Stark sticks to the script given to him by Agent Coulson, but he barely gets a sentence in before reporter Christine Everhart starts to grill him over the obvious cover story regarding the man in the powered suit being his bodyguard. Going off script, Tony starts telling the press how he's not the hero type, but taking a pause before telling everyone, The truth is, I am Iron Man. So the movie ends with the superhero revealing his identity to the world. I don't believe that's ad-libbed, by the way. Yeah, it's very hard to believe. Don't believe... Like, how else was the movie going to end? They've set... you're, You're telling me they set everything up... (laughs) <laughs> for a discussion about about him and his bodyguard, that's how the movie. No. It's it's such a story that is like, it's a story that's like, oh, this makes Robert Downey Jr. look like as much of a rebel as Tony Stark. I think that's what it's designed to do. There's yeah. no way that is a real thing that happens. Well, maybe, maybe maybe the real one is, oh, I don't know what possibly could have happened. And then the film ends with him <laughs> winking to the camera. <laughs> As 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 you know, yeah. that effect where the, like, halo, the, 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 the zoom, the zoom yeah. halo over his face no. as he winks, and it's like did it did it did it. 
boop. That'd that's the great. end of Iron that's Man. That's how it should have ended. That's how it should have ended. <laughs> but it's uh, so. Is that something they took from the comics? Then sorry, I was, I was almost going to go over that point. The 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 revealing his identity. Revealing of the identity. Um, in 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 the comics, Tony's identity. Because people think now that oh, everyone knows. Everyone's always known. I was like, nah. He's he's he, like his identity was a secret for th- over thirty years. Um. He when he when he first comes on the scene, he reveals to the world that he's created this incredible flight and and, and battle suit, but that he has a highly trained bodyguard to pilot the suit. That's where the cover story is a reference yeah. to. I get it. Yeah, and and, it, and and he's there to protect Tony and to protect Stark businesses. Mm. The identity of this bodyguard is like a highly guarded um, secret. Although over the years, when Iron Man has, uh come too aggressive like the armor wars saga mm. um tony has been able to like dodge culpability and blame by going oh oh yeah everyone the government and the military and the public they're all really um angry at iron man because he acted too aggressively and hurt people that guy died yeah, that bodyguard. Yeah, that that Iron Man pilot. He died. Yeah, so I got a new guy in there now. No, you can't meet him, and you also can't arrest him because he didn't do the other crimes. Bye. Um, oh, brilliant! So he doesn't reveal his identity to the world until two thousand and two, thirty nine years after the first issue, um, and it's revealed Will in the dumbest way imaginable. Is it a circus? <laughs> <laughs> is there not, a transistor circus a not, circus of transistors it's not a with, with an underground robot that everyone worships as a caveman god is it all happening there Rob? is that the moment he re- reveals it all Rob if it is we stop the podcast because I've had enough I'm afraid it involves no um, Neanderthal robots circuses or magnets um, Tony calls a press conference I forget why um, all the media gather and then as he's given the press conference on the street outside, a car is about to hit a dog. So Tony Stark transforms into Iron Man, stops the car, and saves the dog. And that is it. There's no cool moment, no dramatic moment. It's just really weird and offhand. And um, the final panel is like a halo zoom, and he <laughs> winks at the camera. <laughs> it's, it's worse. Like, this reporter goes, what? Is it it's somebody who's invested in the story. It's like, why? Why? Why would you do all that just to save a dog? And Tony Stark says, I didn't do it for the dog. I did it for him. And points at the little boy whose dog it is, who's very happy. Oh, it, really, it really felt like the, the Marvel writers, the Iron Man writers, had just got sick of doing the secret identity thing and went, I don't know, he saves a dog. I just can't write this anymore. That's that's just like, you surely if you were sick of it, you'd go like, oh, we're finally going to do it. Let's write something in. And it's like, I just, I just want to do it with the most minimal amount of fuss whatsoever. That's what it feels like, yeah. That's definitely what it felt like. Anyway, in a post-credit scene, Shield director Nick Fury visits Stark at home, telling him that Iron Man is not the only superhero in the world, and explaining that he wants to discuss the Avengers Initiative. I can only imagine because I didn't see this in the cinema, and I haven't been—you know—you know me—I'm not a long-term. Marvel fan, I haven't read the comics. I can only imagine how it must have felt to be a long-term Marvel fan, watching the first Iron Man film, and then Samuel L. Mother Flippin' Jackson pops up at the end to say, there's more to come. 
it was amazing. It was really, yeah. really, really exciting and thrilling. Yeah. That's so good. But, uh, of course, on creating the post-credits scene, something that has become a staple in the MCU and, indeed, other franchises, John Favreau stated it initially st- uh, started out as a lark. He said, There was a bit of a lark. That was a bit of a lark, sorry. I wanted to include Easter eggs that the fans would appreciate and we thought the idea of a post credit scene could be fun. It was something that wasn't really in the scripts originally. But uh, I thought the idea of Nick Fury being Sam Jackson would just be fun. Because when Nick Fury was reimagined in the Ultimates comic book, they recast him as Sam Jackson. And I thought that would be a really good nod to the audience. We had the idea that we would somehow group these characters together. That was part of what would happen. But a lot of things had to go right for that to happen. So we were really just laying out a basic mission statement of purpose to show our intent and thinking that the few people who would linger in the theatre would be the ones who would appreciate it most. So there we have it. We have, after three years, remastered our take on Iron Man to bring you the full history, the full context, to to bring you that big, deep dive, thanks to Will, um, to go into the, pull the movie apart and to dive into that history and trivia, some of the early moments of, um, of Iron Man, some of the defining moments from the 70s and 80s. Incredible, amazing. Um, I really think we've done this first chapter of the mcu proud but i'll uh, i'd like to hand the reins back to will to get his final thoughts from a movie perspective on this film well you know we've we've seen it already it's got 94 rotten tomatoes what does my opinion count basically i keep thinking back to this film and going yeah it was a lot of fun but the mcu vastly improved after it but while we've seen don't get me wrong there's brilliant movies follow this This is still an incredibly strong entry, if not among the best. There's just the right amount of world building, character development and action. The ad-libbing improv works so well in Downey Jr.'s favour. This is probably the moment where his career solidly turned around. And indeed, strong cast all around, especially his interactions with the the Paltrow's Pepper Potts and indeed some bits with Jeff Bridges' Obadiah Stain. All good. And of course... Uh, Terence Howard as uh, as Rhodes. Great, great, great chemistry. The jokes landed, action scenes worked, and apart from, this is my only nitpick, the slightest, ever so slightest bit of dated CGI in a couple of shots that is forgivable, this might as well be a perfect movie. Perfect movie in my opinion. Thanks for that, Will. If you guys are looking to um, dive into the Marvel comics on the back of this and would like some... Um reading list references um there's a uh, collection called essential iron man volume one that's got all the old original 60s stuff in but as i've outlined it's pretty weird um um, if you check out iron man iron monger that collection has got all the ebediah stain stuff um tony sliding into alcoholism again and then coming back with new armor and fighting uh, Iron Munger. Um, and a great place to start reading Iron Man in general, I think, is the um, the series that was launched in 2008 by Matt Fraction, which is called Invincible Iron Man, The Five Nightmares. That's the start of Matt Fraction's long run on the character, which is fantastic. Our next deep dive episode 
uh, with Quantum Mania in the cinemas, and as the Hulkster would say, "What you gonna do when Quantum Mania runs wild on you?" Well, <laughs> we're gonna go and check out. We already took a, a look at Avengers: Earth's Mightiest Heroes, that cartoon series. Will you loved that? Um, it's great. And we are heading back to look at like the best depiction of of Kang up until this movie comes out, which is they do a, a trilogy, a Kang trilogy of episodes in Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes. That's what we're going to be doing so we can dive into um, a huge amount of Kang history and trivia right as that movie is kicking off in the cinemas. Uh, we'll hope you join us for that. And don't forget, there is bonus content and ways to support us if you head to patreon.com slash Marvel versus Marvel. Marvel vs. Marvel was researched, written, and performed by Rob Holden and Will Preston. The show is produced by Will Preston, and our theme song was composed and performed by Dan Walsh. Head to patreon.com slash marvel vs. marvel for awesome bonus content. Marvel vs. Marvel.